knee and hand here, sir. The point man. Here's a lead pass. Hudson with the room of being on the right wing. Slap shot. Scores! Cody Hudson makes it 4 2 Canucks with a rocket. What a shot. So, this isn't going to necessarily be the Open for the rest of your daughter's life. But I think one more time I want to ask you, now that you're two weeks into fatherhood. Okay. How is it going, and how is the first week different than the, the second week different than the first? Uh, it wasn't so different until last night, and uh, she was kind of cranky. We gave her these uh, these drops of like vitamin D and whatever, and for whatever reason it can make kids like gassy and stuff. So she was not happy last night. But other than that, it's been... Been smooth sailing so far. All right, the sportscasters are here. It is season two, episode eight. My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host Don Russ. We got a great show planned for you today. We have the return of our boy Dave Damashek, who was last on season one, episode fifty. Yeah. And uh, you know, it seems like we usually utilize Dave to celebrate with us. You know, like when we got to the twentieth show, I think he was on. I know he was on, and he was on the fiftieth show. But we kind of booked him today because we just missed him. And we love <laughs> we love when Dave's a part of the show, and it'd be interesting to see to get some perspective from him as he kind of reflects back on what was his kind of first full year with the NFL Network right, and all right, the different yeah. things he did at NFL. So I'm looking forward to talking to Dave. Also, I don't know, Don, you and I were talking last week, and for some reason Dan Levy came up, and I don't remember in what context or what the discussion was. But I, I thought, oh, maybe we should book Dan. He's in a new capacity now as a senior analyst for Bleacher Report. And uh, we hadn't talked to him in in a very, very long time. So we booked him. So Dan Levy's going to be on the show. And also, for the first time, Andy Strickland, who covers the National Hockey League and the St. Louis Blues and has his own website, TrueHockey.com, is going to join us to talk about the NHL trade deadline. We played that clip off the top. And um, uh, uh, what is, is it? Corey? Cody. Cody. Cody Hodgson uh, is now a Buffalo Sabre. Paul Gostad is not a Sabre anymore. So we'll get into that more. A couple of things to remind you about. Facebook, of course. You can find us there, the Sportscasters. It's facebook.com slash the Sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters. You can uh, tumble with us. And one thing I've been doing a lot with Tumblr is after each show, kind of giving you a behind-the-scenes look into how the show kind of came together over the course of Tuesday. And uh, that's been really fun. So you can find that at sportscasters.tumblr.com. You can email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com. And our website is www.sports-casters.com. On our website, you can find our episode from last week, which was really, really good. Uh, season 2, Episode 7, Jeff Passan made his first appearance on the show since Episode 1, Season 1. Yep. Uh, also, Pablo S. Torre took us through the Linsanity business. <laughs> and uh, Gene Wojciechowski kind of closed off his book, The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky, in 2.1 seconds that changed basketball. So a really great show last week, and I encourage you to go to our website and check it out. What do you think happens with Lynn Sanity now that uh, there was a little bit of a lull because of the All-Star break? you think it kind of fades away, or it depends on what he does? I or? think it's about him. I, you know, He scores 38 points tomorrow, and it's just well, as big right, as it was right, yeah. the day you know, before. One thing that's going to be interesting to follow there is 
now that Carmelo and Stoudemire are a part of that team, how he kind of still fits. Right. You know, because they think they played one or two games together before the All-Star game, and I don't remember the results being that great. But hmm. we'll talk to Lee Jenkins about that soon. i got to get Lee, Lee back on the show soon. Another thing I want to mention before we get into it, and that is make sure that you're going to Cold Hard Football Facts and FootballNation.com. Those two websites are going to be important to the fans of the sportscasters. And I, th- I hope that sportscasters.com is going to become more and more important to the fans of Cold Hard Football Facts and Football Nation. And we're really excited about some of the plans that we're working out now behind the scenes with Kerry J. Byrne. So I just want to make sure you guys are checking out uh, Cold Hard Football Facts, Pro fo- uh, FootballNation.com, and our other partner, ProPlayerInsiders.com. Right. All right, let's get this started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, you mentioned off the top uh, the NHL trade deadline has come and passed yesterday. Uh, I've said before it's my favorite sports day of the year as a hockey fan, uh, but practically nothing happened yesterday. Not, yesterday was a bust. The big news was going to be the Rick Nash trade. I kind of went off the radar and boldly predicted he'd end up in Boston. He ended up nowhere. Uh, it turns out they wanted the sky for him. But not only that, but there wasn't even really – much in addition to that that happened and and anything big that did happen happened all at the three o'clock mark or was not even announced until after the three o'clock mark and maybe the biggest surprise of all of it is the somewhat maybe uh conservative darcy regeer made what was probably the biggest move of the day shipping cassian for hodson and also grignani and another right right grignani right but uh yeah, it's always a day I look forward to, and I have to say, as an above-average hockey fan, most of the names that were moved I had never heard of before, and with the exception of the players on my teams or guys like Brian Ralston, uh, Johnny Oduya, Sammy Paulson, not Steetson. Yeah, Steetson was maybe the first big-ish move of the day, but yeah, really uneventful trade deadline day. I think part of it is the three-point games. Yeah, everyone's You so know, the, the three-point games teams are in it a lot longer than in the past. There's still 21 games left in the season. I think there was just less selling going on because the revenue that is associated with hosting playoff games is huge. You know, I have heard in the past that sometimes the team's budget is set up to break even and then to make money with each home game that you host, For the playoffs, which could right, be up yeah. to a, a million dollars a home game, right? which would be all profit. So I think teams are hesitant to take themselves out of that with 20 games left. And also, think like I think the CBA coming, yeah, yeah. you know, being that was this as a year not to maybe, you don't know what the landscape of hockey is going to look like. So I think that shied people away. And I think July 1st is becoming a bigger and bigger day. And maybe 
we're going to find out that July 1st is going to be the new trade deadline day. Yeah, I was going to ask that. That we're going to look forward to. I was going to ask that about draft days. The draft day may become a day where there's more trades. I mean, you see lots of trades in football. I mean, not usually for players, but picks for picks. I wonder if you start to see more player trades happen on draft day. It seems like the Sabres think so because it seemed like a lot of what the Sabres did yesterday was try to position themselves to have the most flexibility possible on draft day. Right. I don't. They now have two number one picks, two number two picks. And listening to Darcy Rigger, I don't get the impression that they're planning on using all those picks. I think they're going to trade them. Right. They wanted flexibility. They wanted flexibility and opens up a lot of options for the Sabres. Either... You know, if they don't make the playoffs and they end up in the lottery and they, they maybe end up with one of those picks being a, you know, a second-round pick or a second overall or third overall pick or something like that, that's a huge that's a huge piece. Yeah, so like I said, it, it's a day that never really got going, and uh, we mentioned last week that we might be doing live blogs, and it's probably a good thing we didn't because they probably would have got a little weird because <laughs> it was just not a lot going on. One thing I wanted to mention kind of to go along with the trade deadline day, I'm really disappointed with the NHL Network. I kind of, as a as a question that doesn't need an answer, what is the NHL Network? Because every time the NHL has a big day, they just copy, simulcast TSN. Yeah. You know, all day yesterday, the NHL Network just provided the United States with the feed from TSN on trade deadline. Are they just saying they can't do it better than them? Are they saying that this is just cheaper? I mean, what is this network? They don't cover their own draft. When World Juniors come, they they simulcast that. Every hockey game they air is just a simulcast of another broadcast of the game. Right. You know what is this network? What it's just extremely disappointing. I we, think we talked about this before, uh, during our show prep, and uh, the first thought that came to my mind was who would even cover it. Like, who are NHL Network guys? Like, right, I have no idea. Kevin Weeks, I think, maybe does their... Like, basically, the one original piece of programming they run, is and they run it to death at night. sports type show. Right, right. it's sports center basically, and they just show clips of the game. Which they just changed it from NHL on the fly to NHL Live, I believe. Okay, and they do that thing uh, around dinner time, I think with EJ Heretic. Uh It's like a... It looks almost like a podcast or something that's filmed from... But again, isn't that them just showing us a radio show on (laughs) NHL radio? Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how many uh, reporters are on their payroll. I just don't know what that station is. I don't know. I mean, I'm glad glad it's there because I get to watch things on TSN that ESPN doesn't provide me with it. So I'm glad it's there, but I just feel like... What, no one in the United States is capable, like the NHL isn't capable of hiring five people and sit around a table and talk <laughs> about the NHL trade deadline? Yeah, I mean, even uh, Versus at the time had their studio show with their their own guys. Well, that's another thing. Where is Versus on a day like this? Yeah, NBC Where is Sports? the NBC Sports Network? I'm not sure. What, I thought hockey is your main thing, Yep. right? The NFL is ESPN's main thing, so they make sure that they cover the draft. You know, the NFL Network covers the Combine and does a great job yeah, doing Yeah, the NFL it. Network is the total opposite. They have tons and tons of coverage. I mean, more than most football fans would actually even need. But. A lot of people call the NHL a garage league, and this is an example of why they, they call it that. Because they have their own network, and it's embarrassing. Right. I mean, they, they have to use the Canadian coverage, like you said. 
All right, my number one thing today, the NFL did something they don't do very often, and that's they back down. This time, they back down to the president, Barack Obama. <laughs> the NFL is going to play their first Wednesday night game since the Lions and the Rams played September 22nd, 1948. Wow. Yes. Uh, here's the thing. I guess the week that the NFL is going to kick off this year is also the week of the Democratic National Convention. And Thursday night is the night that President Obama plans to address the convention. Right. Well, of course, you know, Thursday night is the night that usually the NFL holds their kickoff game. So they made the decision today that instead of going head-to-head with the Democratic National Convention, they'd move the game to Wednesday. So the question is, Don, do you think that the NFL did this out of respect to President Obama? Or do you think that they did this because they didn't want to have to share their audience? With President Obama, or maybe another answer, C, both. I think it's probably mostly they didn't want to share the audience. Uh, that's that's their big day too. So uh, there's no better time to do it than the first week of the year. If this were the second week of the season, I'm not sure what, what they could do because then you've got a team playing like on a Sunday night and then a uh, then a Wednesday. In this case, you've got a team playing a Wednesday and then they just get like an extra long break. So for the teams involved, it's actually pretty nice for them. Yeah, so it'll be the Giants, like second bye. the Giants, and somebody. somebody right. Maybe the Packers, maybe the Saints. Right. Uh, I've heard some, maybe the Eagles, maybe the Cowboys. They can go a bunch of different ways because they play in the NFC East. But for those teams, it's uh, to get almost like a second early season or like an early season bye. Uh, any other time of the year, it would have been tough to do. So You know what it's going to affect, and I don't think the NFL took this into account, our fantasy league. <laughs> we, we usually, usually draft, draft on the Wednesday before yep. the first. So we're going to have to change that, I guess, to the Tuesday before the first Wednesday game. We podcast then, so it'll have to be a late draft. Oh, man. Or we got all kinds of problems weekend here. Draft? I know. Oh, my goodness. President's screwing us all up. Damn it, Obama. All right, my second thing is the NFL Combine. Speaking of the NFL, uh, it's up and running, and people are drooling over numbers and stats and men in their underwear, as they do every time this year. Quick look at some of the highlights rg3 runs a 4.38 and just blows people away and uh basically st louis says all right come and get come em. and get them yeah yep. so i mean st louis is loving that they're going to take that pick to the bank uh andrew luck is impressive he out verticals what cam newton did last year whatever that means for a quarterback and uh out of nowhere this guy named poe uh 346 pound defensive tackle runs a 4.87 wow and also leads the combine in 44 reps, um, bench presses. At 225. At 225, yeah. yeah. And to put that into perspective, Namakung Su ran just slightly over five in the 40, but is 40 pounds lighter. So this guy's an absolute freak of nature. We looked beforehand. He wasn't even on Mel Kuyper's top 25. Going this is the type the of guy that somebody is going to jump all over. And you'd have to think, like, I'm not a football guy in that I've never played. I don't know the X's and O's We're not beyond, scouts. beyond Madden. Right? right? We're not scouts. But as, from the defensive tackle position, you can make this guy work, right? This isn't like, uh, what was the guy, Mike Jones from Jacksonville? Is that his right. name? Uh, no, it was, um, no, I know, yeah. The quarterback. The quarterback that from Arkansas. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. Coke problem, whatever. Yep. But this isn't a matter of converting a Matt. quarterback. Matt Jones. Yep. This isn't a matter of converting a quarterback to a wide receiver. This is a, a strength position, and this guy's strong and fast and huge. It, 
I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? Yeah, and the buzz is, like we said, we looked on Mel Kuyper's big board going into the combine. He wasn't in the top 25, but then Todd McShay has a report today that he's moved into the middle of the first round and could go as high as number 11, Kansas City. So, I mean... So he's made a lot of money for himself this right. weekend at the combine. This kid obviously was on nobody's radar, at least not early. Not top 25. He busted his ass apparently in the offseason, got into great shape. So this kid's work ethic is is uh, is there, and he made himself millions of dollars. What a freak. Yeah. All right, my number two thing. The slam dunk contest is stupid. <laughs> Look, at, I'm not a big NBA guy anyway. But the slam dunk contest has come a long, long way from Michael Jordan flying from the... Yep. I mean, we had a one-year break. You know, last year it was cool again, watching Blake Griffin do kind of jump, jump over, over cars. cars and, and, right. But, you know, Blake Griffin didn't defend his title this year. The winner of the event was a guy named Jeremy Evans, who plays for Utah. And just the whole thing, it's a sham. There's all, all the stars are there. In Orlando this weekend, but none of the stars no. are dunking. Why not? And I would say I don't get it. Yeah, it's it's sad. And uh, again, like like you said, Jordan used to do it. Biggest player in the game, maybe ever, and he wasn't too big for it. I watched maybe three or four guys go, and most of what it was was two minutes of them missing their dunks. I don't know if they don't have time to. And then the fans this, were or... voting exclusively this year, yeah. I guess, and. I mean, listen to some of the champions of the past of this. Michael Jordan, Dominique Wilkins, Julius Irving, Jason Richardson, Kobe Bryant, Nate Robinson, Blake Griffin, Jeremy Evans. <laughs> I mean, I just don't understand. There was a report that LeBron James said that he would probably participate if there was a $1 million purse. Just another jerk thing for LeBron yeah, James. Classy. There was a video that went viral of like an eight-year-old kid questioning why LeBron James isn't in it. Like, this is the kind of thing that you can't explain to an 8-year-old. Right. You can't explain why all these players that he knows are sitting around the court, but none of them will get off, take their tearaway pants away, and do a dunk or two. (laughs) That reminds me of a story I heard. This is not sports-related, but uh, this kid with cancer asked Taylor Swift to the prom. I don't know if you heard about this. Uh, Taylor Swift said, sorry, I can't make it, but would you want to be my date for the whatever the country music awards are? So here's an example of a girl that gets nothing to do this. She's a millionaire, too, isn't asking for money to take this kid to go. And on the flip side, you got LeBron who needs money and is disappointing his eight-year-old fans. It's, it's, it's disappointing, and uh, it puts the villain hat on him again. Don't have it. If this is the best you can <laughs> right. do, don't do it. It's like it's kind of like in our in, let's let's a much shorter scale. Let's say the sportscasters. Let's say I spend this week trying to book an episode, and the best person that I can book for the show is my next door neighbor. <laughs> we probably shouldn't have a show that week, or at least one without guests. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So stupid. Absolutely. Uh, my last thing this week. We don't talk much, or this might be the first we've actually talked about NASCAR, but the Daytona Five Hundred. It was a strange sequence of events. Uh, It was supposed to take place Sunday, and it got rained out for the first time in... 56. 56 years. Mm -hmm. So it was pushed to Monday at 1 o'clock, which is odd in itself to have it on a kind of a work day in the middle of the day. Rained out again until 7 p.m. on Monday. Great. I mean, they can can do it in prime time. 
Two laps into it, there's a crash that takes out maybe the biggest star in NASCAR, Jimmy Johnson, and knocks Danica Patrick out, who would eventually come back and finish. But still, two of the biggest names. Danica might not be exactly an all-star. But, but she's Danica like, also brings the casual, interested, right, to check this the, out uh, kind of thing. She's Anna Kornikova. Right, story. Right. She's knocked out. Okay. Uh, so maybe it's looking like it's going to be a lousy, uneventful race. Eventually, Jeff Gordon is gone. Right. So there's many, many of the stars didn't finish. A lot of people not finishing, and then with about 40 laps to go, yep, uh, a car crashes into like a, a truck they were using to dry off the the, the uh, surface. Yep. Which is odd to me in the first place that this truck is on <laughs> the surface while they're racing around, but and this starts like a massive fireball, which I'm sure. Everyone has seen by this point, but uh, huge fire, huge giant fire. It takes them a little while to get it out. It was jet the, fuel. It burned a hole in the track. Yeah, yeah. It burned the track up. Uh, so it takes them forever to get this fire out, and then they have to clean it up. And they're taking out tide, and they've got uh, seed spreaders spreading tide all over this stuff, and they're sweeping it off. And apparently, they just spent like ten million dollars on this track to get it up to snuff for this uh, for the race, and. There it is on fire. Just a really bizarre scene. Yeah, and anyway, the race Twitter's blowing up. goes on, doesn't finish until after 1 a.m. So Eastern I mean, time. Eastern time. This yeah. is like uh, MLB World Series right. bad news stuff for the sport. Uh, and Matt Kenseth is eventually the winner. I, Which I, I they added it, in overtime. Between the 40th lap and the first lap, there was another five cautions, at least. <laughs> I mean, it was the longest they've ever probably run 40 laps in the history of NASCAR. At one point, they were trying to fill, like, a hole in the track, and they eventually filled it with, like, plastic or something like that. It was just a really bizarre race, and I don't know if this is good or bad for NASCAR. I mean, I... Got people talking. Never watched NASCAR, and I guess I, I flipped it on. I mean, they should have more of their races in primetime, maybe, because I'm not going to sit down on a Sunday and watch it for four hours, but maybe if it's on... And none of my TV shows are on, or if it preempted my TV show, the Monday I would night, sit down and watch it. I think they might look into the Monday night thing. I, That's I think interesting. They Monday night racing is interesting. There's an interesting thing to see it in that, you know, but this is what they call their Super Bowl. It's the way they kick off their season. And I wonder about uh, people who paid to advertise. Were, were they disappointed? Were they happy? It's just a really bizarre scene, but, you know, look it. They need good weather. To run, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and they, and uh, believe it or not, they don't have like a phone number to God or anything like that. Where they, I mean, and it, <laughs> it, they have a great track record of getting these races in. It's the only one that's yeah, been it's delayed. amazing. Fifty, you know, years. so whatever it happened, and it's a bummer. But I think overall, I think it was good for NASCAR, right? And I really do. The one thing got people talking about it, right? And casual fans will always say they watch for the crashes and stuff like that. There was plenty of mayhem and stuff like that, and nobody got hurt. So, And that's going to change. Now they're going to say the casual fan watches for the fires <laughs> on the track. Yeah. All right, my last thing. Last week on the show, we had Jeff Passon on, and we talked a little bit about Ryan Braun, who had tested positive for a banned substance and was suspended 50, days, uh, 50 games by Major League Baseball. And at the time when we were talking to Jeff, he was saying that he would bet a dollar if he had to that – the suspension would not be overturned. Next day, word came in, suspension was overturned. Really, really, really bad thing for baseball. Here's why. The defense wasn't that he didn't use drugs. The defense was that the the sample that like he gave submitted. was handled incorrectly. Right. Now, word comes down today that 
Dino Lorenzi Jr. He issued a statement saying that he handled the sample submitted following a playoff game on October 1st. Um, he's taken more than 600 samples from Major League Baseball in the drug testing program. Uh, he says that according to the drug collecting procedure, because there was no FedEx office located within 50 miles of Miller Park that would ship packages that day or Sunday, that he kept it in the refrigerator, and that's how this guy got off. You know, um, he says he filed protocol. It's just a really stupid thing. It's lawyers it's, making the decision. It's beating the spirit of the rule with a technicality. It seems like the ultimate uh, brushing it under the rug. And it just makes me thing. hate Ryan Braun more. It's like, look, at, <laughs> you know that you, you cheated, you got caught, and you're really going to weasel your way out of it by a technicality. Is that what you're going to teach people? But is That's C- what you're teaching kids that watch Major League right. Baseball? Is Selig hey, to blame call for this? lawyer. I don't know. Who, well, he's appealed it. Okay. Right? Yeah. He appealed it. Cause, because why? Not because he thought he didn't do the drug, but because he saw a way where he could use a technicality to beat the rule. Right. And this, he could save all that money he was going to lose by missing 50 games of the season. This reminds me of uh, the Royal Rumble where I think it was Vince McMahon. Just stop right there. Anytime something with Major League <laughs> Baseball reminds you of something from the Royal Rumble, you got a big effing problem. Yeah, there was the... The one Royal Rumble where uh, they, I think it was Vince and Stone Cold Steve Austin, fought like all throughout uh-huh. the stadium right. because they went out the bottom rope. Right, right, right. And right. then they came back in and, and then, then one, they, of, them one right? of them won. One of them won. Oh, of course. Right. So everyone else that played by the rules the whole time. Right. Like Hillbilly Jim. Right. Yeah. He <laughs> did it the right fucked. way. They got screwed over. Right. And this guy is just going to skate because of some weird technicality. Like what, what improper handling of urine can make steroids show up in urine. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm not a doctor. The whole thing is a joke and it's a black eye and Ryan Braun, you know what? You're on my jerk list. There you go. You just start because you know what? What did you, what did you teach people who are fans of you to cheat then try to find a technical way to get out of cheating and to do it so you can save money. So you're not suspended, whatever. You're a jerk. I think they should take the MVP away from you. The nice thing is the way people are with voting you're never going to get in the Hall of Fame now, whether you no. put together a Hall of Fame career or not. Your name's tainted forever, and I'm glad. And uh, College football at least pretends to take things away from people. They take away. Right, take away the Heisman Trophy yeah. or whatever. You know, I guess it's stupid to take the MVP away because, you know what, Ryan Braun won it on the field. But the disappointing thing is running on the running on the field is, is a cheater. Cheater, right. Because this dr- drug test would take, take him before game one of the NLCS. Yeah. He's cheating in the playoffs on top of it. Go away, Ryan Braun. And you know what? Major League Baseball, you need to get this shit sorted out because, again, I have to go into the, the season just doubting everything. Oh, yeah. The MVP of the National League got caught busted doing steroids. I thought we were <laughs> past this. I thought the drug era was over. I thought the Mitchell Report solved this. Sure doesn't look like it. I'd be careful with that jerk list stuff, though. We got Dave on later. He might have copyrighted that. All right. Speaking of Dave, let's let's take a break. I'm going to calm down, and we'll come back with the great Dave Damashek. Our first guest is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and is a graduate of Indiana University. He has worked in television, producing pages for Jimmy Kimmel Live, Sports Geniuses, and The Man Show. He is also a pioneer in the podcasting industry, having hosted Damashek On Demand for ESPN, 
the Dave Damaschek Show, powered by AccuScore, Dave's of Thunder for the Ace Broadcasting Network, and his current show, the Dave Damaschek Football Program for NFL.com. He also writes a blog for NFL.com, produces a weekly shame report, and speculates on some of the most significant moments in NFL history via his brilliant What If L segments. Like Elvis influenced the Beatles, or maybe like Pearl Jam influenced Creed, a warm sportscaster's welcome to the man who influenced the show, the great Dave Damashek. How are you doing today, Dave? <laughs> What's the poop, fellas? Boy, that is a uh, that's self-deprecation if I've ever heard it. Your creed, the My Pearl Jam. <laughs> I wasn't sure, you know. I, when I wrote, you know, Elvis to the Beatles, that didn't feel right. But we're probably in the middle somewhere, right? Somewhere in between. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, giving me too much praise and yourselves, uh, not enough. But uh, but either way, I appreciate it. And it's nice to hear that uh, Indiana University fight song because for the first time in a decade, they're now relevant. And uh, the Pitt Panthers, my favorite team from my hometown, NIT bound if they're lucky. Yeah, it's not a great year for Oklahoma basketball either. And local <laughs> basketball here is pretty brutal the St. Bonaventure's men team was maybe going to make it interesting for a second, and then they they didn't. The Bonnies, yeah, one of the, they, worst, one of the one of the more underrated bad names for a uh, for a university. <laughs> the Bonnies doesn't exactly strike fear in the hearts of their foes. Pretty hideous. So welcome back, buddy. You were last yeah. on. You're last on our fiftieth show, and this mm. is um, I don't know. Let's season two. We start counting over again. We're up to episode eight of season two. I think we did. When did you how did you decide that that one season had ended and a new one had begun? When we took Christmas break. I very, <laughs> very clever. That's yeah. a, that's a I, I like that. That's a cagey move on your part. <laughs> May as well just call it season 7. People be like, "Whoa, where have I been? <laughs> this must be great. I got to start listening." Yeah, when we uh we even set it up, we kind of set up a season finale. We had Mike Pereira on. You know, so we had kind of like a nice little thing there. And then we kind of had like a season premiere. And I don't remember who I – we had a big guest when we came back a couple weeks later, but I can't remember who it was. Someone good. And, um, yeah, so that's – we didn't want to get into a situation where it's like episode number 344. So we figured we'd reset every year around Christmas time. I see. All yeah. right. Good enough. So you had a great year, and I'm excited to have you on now because – Last time we were kind of like in the middle of football season. It seems like this was your first like real full season with NFL and NFL.com and all the different things you did there. And I'm just curious, like as you look back on the year, I assume you think it was kind of a crazy success, right? Was it was it more than you expected? What you expected or potentially oh, I, even I, less? I, I don't know that I would uh, call it a, a crazy success, but it, yeah, it was definitely crazy because, you know, continuing to work at the Kimmel show – and then doing all, you know, doing the shame report, my foolishness and uh, talking fantasy and the podcast and everything. And now just started doing for uh, NFL Network and NFL.com. They are sending me out on the road for the full. It's going to be even crazier because now for the next 12 months, I'm going to be out on the road going to basically like the bucket list for football fans. All the things that you would want to do, your, your dreams. And, of course, the NFL can uh, provide access to all these things. Like I went to the combine this past weekend and, uh, and just did a whole bunch of hooey and applesauce with, uh, you know, with the, those Oklahoma state guys, uh, Brandon Whedon and Justin Blackman and, uh, you know, Ryan Khalil and, uh, so on, you know, or Matt Khalil and, uh, you know, had, uh, got to be down on the field and run around with them, but then I'm going to go to the draft next month and go to all the games and the, 
in maybe the Thursday night games on NFL Network all season long, and I'll take uh, a fan with me. Perhaps you guys could join me. Yeah, can you rig it for us to win? (laughs) Well, I think doesn't every team, I think every team is playing on Thursday night. Yeah, um, I heard that. This year. But, I mean, I really find it hard to believe that they're not going to make an exception and cut out the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> no, I don't blame you. Hey, before we get too far ahead, number eight, I got a list for you here. Uh, baseball, Barra, Yastrzemski, Ripken, Dawson, that creep Ryan Braun. Uh, basketball, uh, Kobe Bryant, Darren Williams, Michael Beasley. Hockey, T. Mussolini, a favorite of yours, Cam Neely, mm-hmm. Mark Rocky, Ovechkin, um, Jeff Sanderson, Doug Bodger, favorite of mine. In football, we have uh, Steve Young. Troy Wait, how did Dougie Sam Bodger, a little uh, trivia quiz for you, how did Dougie Bodger uh, come to play in Buffalo? Uh, how did we acquire Doug Bodger? I, honestly, I'm not sure. I was only a youngster he was, then. He was, yeah, you were young. He yeah. was a part of the package that brought Tommy Barrasso, two-time Stanley Cup champion, oh, okay. between the pipes for the Penguins in 91 and 92. He was oh, yeah. part of the package that that helped acquire uh, Tommy Barrasso, the the uh, personally difficult but uh, talented goaltender. Yeah, so he was. I was eight years old when he came here from Pittsburgh. Yeah, well, see, you're not that much younger than I am then, because yeah, I do remember that trade going down. But anywho, yeah, yeah I love so. Dougie Bodger. You said Pop Stargell, yes, yes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, what about. Oh, you didn't say you, – you skipped right over Pop Stargell. He and his 475 home runs mean nothing to you. How dare the only I? Man, the only man to ever hit the ball out of Dodger Stadium, and he did it twice. Wow. Maybe somebody has trumped that, but that might have been uh, enhanced. This was, this was not uh, chemically enhanced home runs by Pop Stargell. Right, yeah. So th- those are the eights as you're on Season 2, Episode 8. But we were talking football. So you know what I have to say? I was blown away by the shame reports all year. You know, when I first heard you were going to take what was the jerk list and turn it into this thing called the shame report, it's kind of like a little skeptical to be honest, but I forgot about the jerk. Like it is the shame report to me. Like you've totally successfully rebranded it and I really just love those segments all year and it seems like you had a lot of fun doing them too. Yeah, I like doing those, but the thing that people have enjoyed the most, if you go to uh, to davedamashek.nfl.com, you can see them, are those, uh, like you mentioned, the NFLs, the uh, animated things that the uh, couple of uh, fellows up in Chicago from bindledog.com do that are gang, but it's really all the animation that makes them great, but uh, um, yeah, those those are the segments that people seem to like the best, but uh, yes, thank you, very kind of you. I have to say. be honest, though, I couldn't click on the Drew Brees one. I didn't even want to hear what it was. I didn't even want to entertain the the notion that that could have he could do something shameful. Yeah, I, no, because it, it was what he did was Dave said, "Well, what if the Dolphins would have made the oh, right decision you know, and, and instead of Call Pepper, you know, signed Breeze?" And I couldn't even click on that. I didn't even want to. Didn't even want to th- think of it. I like people who are such zealots that they take that stance. I, I respect that. As a matter of fact, like for instance, the best example that I can think of is. Uh, Kimmel has never seen the movie Hoosiers. You know, you say that's cutting your nose to spite your face, but I still respect the stand that he's taken because he is a diehard UNLV fan. And when that movie came out, it was in the same week or in the same month as when UNLV lost to the Indiana Hoosiers. And he made that connection and said, now I can never see that movie and has has stood by it low these uh, couple or few decades since. Wow. Good for him. You know, I've never seen Titanic. Weird. That's a, you know what? It's funny you say, because I was just talking um, 
a couple weeks ago to uh, to my old uh, pal on Dave's of Thunder, David Feeney, and he and I were talking because Titanic's been getting a fair amount of run because it's coming on, out on cable lately, yeah. oh. and uh, we were talking about that. That would be a great movie to sit down and do a uh, a commentary track for because boy, that is a underratedly hilarious movie <laughs> it's really a ridiculous movie not because the people are dying but because yeah, too of soon the Dave. completely unnecessary story that goes along with it between uh the redhead and uh and a and a young uh, a willowy leonardo dicaprio you know dave i never seen uh, i took a stand it was my senior year in high school i think i said i'm never gonna go see the titanic i made an exception when Pearl Harbor came out, which was equally a, rid- a ridiculous premise, so yeah, I said, fine, I'll go see that. And guess what happened to me? I got a wad of gum on my leg. The fates. <laughs> the yeah. fates delivered a message loud and clear that day. They did. What were yeah, you that, even doing? That's there? a good one. That's a terrible movie and fun to laugh at. Somehow you – it's like – it's the same it, – it, 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 it's ailed by the same problem. It, the um, The idea that the producers of this, like, yes – the Titanic, this catastrophic event, same thing Pearl Harbor, even more so. Not enough. Not enough drama in that. We also have to uh, layer in some more ridiculousness just to make sure that it's uh, – it's a, we have to have Kate Beckinsale. We have to have a love triangle uh, between Affleck, Hartnett, and her. But the one good news is uh, from that is uh, Kate Beckinsale. Top five Fox, I think, in Hollywood, yes? I, I don't think it's Kate Beckinsale, though. Yes, you don't tell me it's not Kate Beckinsale. It is Kate Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale was from uh, Underworld. You're thinking of Kate Winslet. She's in Titanic, boy. Wait, which Pearl Harbor? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm still on the Titanic. Don is not even paying attention to the interview. Please keep up. Unbelievable, Dave. I wanted to ask you. You know, we get to we we get to we know what you do for NFL because we get to see it and hear it and read it, but. I'm not really sure. What do you do at Jimmy Kimmel? Can you tell us a little bit about what your role is for the Jimmy Kimmel Live show? Making pages, fella. Well, tell me you more know. about that. Like, can you tell us something uh, you did? What or what, you know, the the Oscars, Dancing with the Stars, uh, Rick Santorum, whatever the ridiculousness of the week is. You uh, you know, you go off into your corner and you and you figure out what's the funniest aspect of it. You write it down. You type it out on a on, on a page on a cyber page. You make your pages. You send them off. The big guy reviews them, decides what he likes best, and you go from there. Let's do this. Let's do that. Did you that get to Did you get to meet Oprah this week or this past week? You know, I didn't because I was at the uh, the combine, and oh. uh, but it was apparently a wild time, punctuated at the end, late on Sunday night. With um, with uh, from what I gather, shots with the staff. That's what I hear. <laughs> oh, wow. yes. I mean, that is in fact the case. I've heard shots, shots with, with the staff. If you can believe that, that's uh, quite a thing. You know, I don't know if you ever watch um, Letterman, but I guess I didn't see it myself. But I guess uh, uh, what's his name? Former ESPN superstar that has his own radio show. Dan Patrick. Oh, yeah. Dan Patrick was supposedly on last night, and they kind of got into it. Has that ever happened on Jimmy Kimmel when you've been around where someone's kind of got it? It didn't go well with Jimmy and – you know, Wait, I didn't hear about the, the Dan Patrick thing. Yeah. I'm gonna have to look that up on YouTube. Just you talk amongst yourselves while I <laughs> Google. Yeah, so the um, yeah, the um, the 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 two that I remember were one Amorosa. Remember her? She yep, was on from the um, Apprentice. The, what was that? The Apprentice, right? Yep. Wasn't she yep. on Donald Trump's Apprentice? Yes. 
Amorosa and uh, and then also Vivica A. Fox. Mm, um, Amorosa, I think Jimmy made a joke about her in the monologue, and so then she refused to even come out oh. that night. She never even made it out. And then Vivica A. Fox was on the stage, and Jimmy made a comment or two. And I think – I don't remember if she walked out in the middle of – but she ultimately swore off the show forever, which oh, of course no. then what the show loss. got popular and right. she backed off of. But that this these these were little faux pas from a uh, from a uh, from a young Kimmel, you know, the guy I, who's now learned that it's not worth it to challenge all these uh, these guests like that. I love it though. Amorosa thought it would matter if she didn't come out, huh? I love it. Yes. Well, you know, I'm sure yeah, millions it, of it, TVs it, clicked off when they heard that Amorosa <laughs> wasn't going to come out. <laughs> Isn't she dating? I, I don't know if she still is, but I think like a year or so ago, she was dating um, John Coffey from um, from Green Mile. I can't think of the actor's name. Yeah, I heard that. But then I heard they broke up and she's now dating Eddie Winslow. No way. <laughs> no, I made that up completely. I'm just <laughs> that was a pretty good one. I like that. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure who Amorosa dates, but it, it would be sweet if she dated Eddie Winslow. And you if know, Eddie Winslow walks around as Eddie think Winslow. Of, think about this. This is true. This I'm not making this up for the story. I am on Sunday. I'm in O'Hare catching a connection, flying back to L.A. after the, uh, after the combine. And um, I am waiting to board the plane. And they say there's a mechanical problem, which I hate. That makes yeah. me nervous. I don't like mechanical problem. We have to fix it. What's wrong with this plane? I don't want to get on this plane now. So now I, I immediately I have that little uh, twinge of, of fear in me. And then we're sitting around waiting to, to get back on the plane. And who's on there? I see, I see uh, Sinbad. Oh. I, say, oh. I say, wow, Sinbad's on this plane. And then two seconds later, I see Tom Green. And I think to myself, wow, you have Damashek, Tom Green, and Sinbad. I hope uh, the gods of discerning comedy are not vengeful or vindictive because they are sure to take this plane down and and, uh, (laughs) kill three birds with one stone um, if they can. So then I'm thinking like, wow, this is really bad. Tom Green, Sinbad, and Damashek, three of the biggest hacks of the last quarter century, (laughs) gathered on one vessel 30,000 feet in the sky – and then I'm looking at my Twitter because, of course, I have to tweet that out that this is the case. <laughs> and so I tweet that out. And some wiseacre says, you know, if you see Rosie O'Donnell on the plane, you'll know then that you're on that you're like Homer and Bart in that Treehouse of Four episode of The yeah. Simpsons. Remember that one where they go to the to the Mars sun. or the, they fly into into the sun or into Mars? Yeah, into the happens. sun. Yeah, yeah the, it's a doomed plane either way. And. So I, on my way onto the plane, I walk by once we finally board. I walk onto the plane and I see Tom Green and Sinbad in first class. And it strikes me, wow, so all right, they must not be doing, doing too bad. They're both flying first class. I go back and uh, I sit in – because I'm a man of the people. Right. You know? right. I, 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 sit, I sit in coach. You sit with the Republic. And I, what's that? You sit with the Czech Republic. That's right. Yeah. So, I, so, so, so I go back to sit in coach. And as I'm making my way to my seat, who do I pass – but uh, uh, I can't think of his – and now all of a sudden, <laughs> what a great story. Uh, uh, Rob Zombie. Oh. Yes, Rob Zombie. So I walked by Rob Zombie, all tatted up, long salt and pepper hair, tatted up down into the hands and everything else. And as I walked by him, I realized, I realized yeah, that's Rob Zombie who had you know some successful – it was cruddy music, but it was right. successful nonetheless. More human and than human. Said, 
And he's directed movies. He's directed right, right. Uh, more things. than one picture. I know that. He's directed at least two movies. You get paid well to direct a movie for the most part. I walk by him, and he's not just in coach, but he's got the middle seat. Oh, he's got God. The, he's got Rob Zombie's in the dirty middle seat. And in the meantime, Tom Green and Sinbad <laughs> are in first class. And I was thinking to myself, this can't be just. And this also, if you're Rob Zombie and you walk by those two, you must think, like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I stuck on the dirty middle seat way in the back of coach and, and these two mooks are way up in the front of the plane? I found it fascinating, and I ask you now, is that right? Is that the pecking order? If well, I have to put – if I tell you two guys out of those three are going to be in first class and one has to take the dirty middle seat in row 30, I think who gets I think it's definitely Tom Green is the lowest there, I think. Yeah, or Sinbad. It's, it's in the wrong well, order. Sinbad, don't forget now, he was on a different world for uh, at least four or five years. He must be, you know, he must have banked a lot of loot doing that. And What's you know Tom how Green we were talking that about the show? They don't pay well. And we were talking about fights. Do you remember when he got into an on air fight with Howard Stern? No, I don't. Howard Stern was getting on him one day because he said he didn't talk enough like a black man. <laughs> and Howard Stern said, "You gotta say, hey, I'm Sinbad. Give me your wallet, like mispronouncing wallet to sound, I guess, black. I, I don't know." And Sinbad got really, really angry with him, and it was a big, big fight. Really? Yeah. Wow! Interesting. Yeah. So we're talking about all these famous clashes here today. Interesting. Yes. And then, of course, I'm not going to recount the story here and now. I've done it way too many times, but of course. Damashek and Gretzky almost went round and round before. But I'm not going to bore your audience with that story again. I, I know I've told it at least 11 times on your show alone. So. Yeah, I almost got into a fight with Dave Snuggerud because I went for autographs. I was supposed to get McGilney's autograph at the at the uh, mall, and I get to the front of the line. It's Snuggerud. It's like, where the hell's McGilney? And Snuggerud's like, McGilney couldn't make it. And I'm like, well, you ain't signing my stick. Forget it. I bailed out of there. He was mad. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, I, I had a, I had a professional NHLer. That's well, awesome. I had Joe Bear Perot sign the stick, so I wanted to get Mogilny. I, I didn't want to get Dave Snuggerud number eighteen on there. No, indeed, no, no indeed. You don't have to explain yourself to me. I just love the scene. Yeah, I, I, I love you high adding him. That's excellent. I got the hell out of there. It's like when someone's trying to give me bit of honey on Halloween. It's like I don't even got space in my bag for that. No, 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 no. So Dave, they, you had me until you went too far, you know. <laughs> okay, you know, honey is delicious. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I know. once, I was once, you know, at um, those places, those uh, mega grocery stores where you buy things in bulk. I bought, I once found in one of those a giant two-pound bag, a massive bag, and you know sometimes they mix and match assorted candies. I found the uh, the Holy Trinity once in a bag. I found um, bit of honeys. Mm-hmm. Tootsie Rolls mm-hmm. and uh, and Bullseye Caramels. You know what I'm talking about? The car- caramels with the white in the middle? Yeah. I'm yeah. not saying that those are the three best candies. I I'm just not. saying that for if you're going to put candies that, that go together, some, some genius came up with that because that chemistry is just right. The bit of honey <laughs> and, a cri- and, and then mix in a little chocolate. Oh, it's just, it was just magical. Did you check... Uh, Rob Zombie or Sinbad or Tom Green's Twitter feed to see if they mentioned they were on a plane with you? 
No, you know what? I didn't. I didn't because I'm too humble to do that. Okay. I'm going to have to look later and see if like Sinbad's like, hey, man, I'm on the same plane as Dave Damashek and Rob Zombie. You know? I think it must be because, of course, then I was, uh, you know, listen, I'm talking as uh, as much about myself as I am them. I'm certainly not wishing uh, uh, ill on any of those guys, really. But I was tweeting like uh, somebody said, uh, Where's, where, where are you headed? And I said, hopefully, uh, for the sake of America, into the side of a mountain. <laughs> um, and uh, and um, I was I was thinking to myself, I wonder if anyone says to Sinbad, I mean, how many people who follow me on Twitter could be following any of those guys. But I, I wonder on the off chance, like if anybody says, or even better would be as if Tom Green happened to randomly follow me and he sees somebody saying like, I'm on a flight right now with Tom Green and I hope it crashes. Like, you know, like, <laughs> wonder, wonder, or, wonder what that does for their self-esteem. Wonder he's made a lot of enemies. Wonder if that freaks them out, you know. Tom Green's used to it. I mean, do you ever see when he, he was trying to undercut the pizza guys and the guy kicked his tackle box full of pizza Ingredients, yeah. yeah. He makes a lot yeah. of enemies, that guy. Listen, he did like – he it, that first – he's turned himself into a punchline. But I think uh, if anyone is being honest, that first season or so funny of uh, his show was pretty yeah. funny. Yeah, that really first, funny On MTV, stuff. the first time he came out, then you realize, well, that's pretty much all he has. And then, right. and then that's why he went away. But for the beginning, it was pretty good. <laughs> so you joke about crashing into the side of a mountain, but did the thought ever go through your head, if this plane does go down – who gets their name in the headline of the newspaper article? Is it you, mm-hmm. Sinbad, uh, Tom Green, or Rob Zombie? I think it's Zombie. You've certainly, yeah, you've given us all a lot to think about. And um, <laughs> I think it goes, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I think, no, I don't think it's Zombie. I no. think it goes Sinbad one. Sinbad one? What if Rick Zombo was on the plane? Who, 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 who? Then Damashek goes down to fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I just I've never been on a flight with anyone I've ever recognized ever. That's so weird Sarah, that you're on a flight. With I worked on the Gary Busey show about ten years ago on his uh, faux reality show on Comedy Central, and about oh, yeah. uh, two years later, and I worked with him for six solid months on every day. The, the dealt with what a tremendous pain in the bum he is. You wrote on that show? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was oh, I used pain. to lo- I used to love that show. He was ridiculous. Oh, yes. It was, but believe me, the behind the scenes was even better. But um, that should have been the show. We wanted it to be that, but uh, we couldn't push that through But um, because he was a bona fide loon. But anyway, <laughs> um, about two years later, I saw him on, air, on an airplane. Like I say, every day, essentially for, for six months, I was with this man. He looked me in the eyes, had no idea, just no recognition at all that <laughs> he'd ever seen me in his life. It was crazy. It was great, though. I loved it. I you know, loved it. Sinbad... Tom yes. Green, uh, Gary Busey, Amarosa, all these people we've talked about have all been on The Apprentice or The Celebrity Apprentice. Oh, I, was, I thought you were about to say that they've, they've all been on this show. I was going to say, <laughs> wow, you guys really, you guys do a great job of booking your show. Yeah, we do a good but, job, but we don't book many. Well, we had, I don't know if you even know this, but we had uh, former Guns N' Roses bass player Duff McKagan on the podcast recently. Is that right? Yeah. To what end? Uh, he writes a sports and music column for ESPN.com, so, uh-huh. uh, and I had re- just read his book called It's So Easy and Other Lies About Rock and Roll or something like that, and uh, he mentioned that you know he was a big sports fan and you know he writes this column for ESPN.com, so I reached out to ESPN PR, booked him, he came on, and it was the first interview he did after the, they got inducted into the Hall of Fame. 
Wow. So we used that and we pushed it hard in the Guns N' Roses online community and we got a ton of downloads. Easily our best downloaded show of all time. And wow, that's a, good for you. Yeah. Not to brag, but we also had uh, the voice of the cat on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yeah, that's true. We did wow. have Nick Bakai on as well. <laughs> no, uh, I listen, I, you just named two more people who uh, rank ahead of me in the, uh, in the uh, victim list. Nick Bakai? Those people. You had Nick Bakai too. Oh, he's not. Well, he, he's funny. He was the voice. Yeah, yeah I enjoy. So, Dave, what happened to the Penguins yesterday? MIA. Well, um, you know, listen. Let's not get caught up in anything and focus on the uh, big picture. This team is. Uh, this is a great story. What's going on with this team? All the injuries. I mean, yep. I, I in it, since I've been watching puck, maybe even sports, I really legitimately cannot recall a team that's been more decimated by injury than the Penguins this year. The the manpower that they've lost for long stretches with their big names, not just not just in terms of bodies, but, I mean, obviously the best player in the game has been out essentially the whole year in Crosby. Stahl missed 15 games, who's, and he's dynamite. Uh, Chris Letang, who I can make a case is, you know, in the top two or three defensemen at least in the mm-hmm. league. Had missed for, was out for a long stretch. The list goes on and on, and uh, and yet they're right there. And were it not for those injuries, you could really make a case that they maybe would be sitting atop the Wales Conference. But either way, they're pretty scary looking right now as we uh, get close to the playoffs. And uh, um, you know what? What if Crosby can come back? What if he can come back? This is that. That's you know hard to say that there's a better team um, in the conference at least. Is Malkin the MVP? Well, I mean, he's neck and neck in, in terms of the uh, Art Ross race with uh, Stamkos, but I think you'd be, I mean, who, who are you going to put ahead of him? The King? You're going to put Lundquist in as the MVP? I thought those days had come and gone for the betterment of hockey. No more uh, Dominic Hasek winning your MVP <laughs> right. award. That just speaks to, uh, to clutch and grab nonsense hockey. We don't want to celebrate that any more than we have to. The, the King has been terrific, but obviously it has a lot to do with system. At any time, a goalie is, I mean, almost, almost any time. It's system-based. It's, right. you know, Marty Brodeur, as we've discussed, I believe, on this show, is overrated because it's a system-based result. Not to say that he's not great and isn't one of the better goaltenders of all time, but to suggest that he's the best of all time, that goes too far. The Devils play a, a brand of puck that uh, that any goalie is going to put up uh, is going to put up good numbers, good good personal numbers with. So no, yes, uh, to me Lundqvist. I mean Lundqvist. Yes, uh, Malkin is uh, is your MVP if he can if he can keep up the you know not just spectacular, but I mean you know the consistency and uh, the course, strength big they show goals and too. you know pick carrying the load basically without. Um, without Stahl and Crosby on the ice for long stretches, like I say. Yeah, he scores such big goals. I mean, anytime it seems like the Penguins tie a game in the last minute or win a game in overtime, it's like you don't even have to look. You know that Malkin scored that goal. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, quite a thing. And what about the disappointment with the Buffalo Sabres? I thought this was going to be their first year. Is this just the first of the new era and things will uh, go up from here? Well, I think that's part of it, but I think they made a couple mistakes. One is they wanted to convince themselves in the summer that Billy Leno was going to be a center. And that by signing Villaleno, they had filled the need at center, and that was a big mistake. They had a bunch of guys just not have good seasons, and we've had as many, if not more, injuries than the Penguins. I think the team that they predicted, I think I've heard, has played something like 
12 games as a team, like the team <clears> that they built. It's something really ridiculous. But and, and and really, but all that's excuses because on November 18th, they were two points out of first place in the Wales Conference, and then Malik, Milan Lucic knocked Ryan Miller into left fi- left field, and nobody did anything, and the team was downhill from that point on. That's so, a that's an interesting perspective, but yeah, I remember at the time uh, people talking about that, and yeah, maybe that is the case. Yeah, you fail to rally like that; yep. it is important in the sport of puck to show that allegiance to team. You're and right, the, and the guy who was on the ice at the time that should have done something, Paul Gostad, is gone. You know, the first chance they had to. I mean, and obviously. I think if it happened or not, to be able to get a first-round pick for a guy who has 21 games left on his contract is, you know, a, bu- a brilliant move. And the swap of Cashin for Hodgson is going to be a, a really good move. Finally, a young, talented center. You know how hard those are to come by. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, another blank check this summer too. You know, so I think, you know, this year has been disappointing, but you have to keep a little bit of perspective. Guy has only been the owner for like a year and a week now. You know, they've only had one off season to improve what was a really budget team. So, mm-hmm. and I true th- enough. So yeah, maybe yeah. next year, the year after that. Yeah. So, and you know, as bad as they've been, they're six points out of the playoffs right now. Well, I With mean, the greatest joy, the greatest joy I could possibly get um, in the NHL would be to see uh, the Capitals flat out miss the playoffs. That oh, would delight great. me to know, especially it. if oh, it was because Florida won the division <laughs> you know like they're really gonna yeah. lose their division to florida or that's you know it's the unfair advantage that they have every year they've never been able to cash in on the fact that they have a division that is imminently winnable they play in in the uh nfc west or afc west i guess this year of hockey and uh and if they really can't win it it is uh quite an indictment on uh, the so-called uh, a year or two ago people were still talking about Ovechkin is the best player in the game i think we can put that one to bed once and for all if he can't even get his team to the playoffs in that crummy division. How pumped are you for the um, A.J. Burnett era to begin in Pittsburgh? Listen, make your jokes, but I love it. I think it's a great move. I mean, listen, we're not the Yankees. The Pittsburgh Pirates are not the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Halos or or anybody else who can fix their problems with money. And, you know, listen, first of all, it's the the right thing to do. It's ridiculous that a team like Milwaukee that's the same market size or uh, maybe even a little bit smaller outspends a team like the Pirates. How can you justify as an ownership that that you're trying doing everything you can when you're when you're being outspent by 30 million dollars by by a team that's the same market size as you? But, yeah, listen, all of a sudden I know this is loco. And it's overly optimistic. But think about this. What if A.J. Burnett can be can return? He has had times in his career when he's been a legitimate top-of-the-rotation guy. And what if James McDonald and Chaz Morton can build on what were respectively good 2011 seasons? Still young arms, still coming into their own. And, you know, then you round it out. Kevin Correa stinks. But, you know, he had a good half of a season last year. And their lineup is is getting close to being a big league lineup if Pedro Alvarez can get his swing back. Their 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 big bop and you know hopefully big bop and third baseman. You know Andrew McCutcheon is one of the three or four or five best players in the National League. He's exciting. If Pedro you know if Pedro Alvarez can you know hit thirty some odd home runs and you know what with the speed they have at the top of the order. This is not a bad team in a crummy 
NL Central, I was about to say maybe they could take a run at it, but now that uh, Ryan Braun's back, I'll I'll uh, I'll stop saying that. But you know, listen, the 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 Red Legs are good. The Cardinals should be all right again, even though they lost pool holes. And uh, but the the Buccos are getting close now. I think I, I I think legitimately, I said it last year, and I and I repeat it now. Twenty thirteen, the the Battling Buccos are playing in the postseason. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I don't know about you, but if there's ever a playoff game at PNC Park, I want to be there. Yeah, listen, that that place, I was there in the midst, uh, you know, it was easy to forget because by August it was all done. But in July, they were uh, atop the division and they were playing good ball were those were those buckos. And I was there and um, yeah, the place was uh, was alive. You know, it's a dynamite, dynamite ballpark. You know, a lot of people say it's the best park in the big leagues or at least of the new era parks it's uh, it's the best one and uh yeah it's made for baseball it's a great atmosphere yeah if the buckos could just i mean the you know the the fans definitely turned out um so boy it certainly would be a gay old time if they could find their way to the postseason sportscasters are here with the great dave damashek you can follow him on twitter at damashek just a couple more minutes left hey dave did you hear that my partner over there don gave uh or his wife gave birth to baby oprah russ is that right? Yeah. Oh, I First did time see your father. tweets, and yeah. in fact, I tweeted something back about that muzzle tub of some sort. That's wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yes. Uh, so, what, what you went, Oprah Russ? <laughs> it's actually Molly. Molly. All right. Not as snappy, but all right. Still a <laughs> still still a solid name. Very good. Good for you. That's great. Thank you. That's your first, right? That is. That's a, yeah. Right. You said the first uh, the first one of sports. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I did read that. So uh, yeah, good for you. Terrific. Having a good time so far. So far, I can't complain. It's only been two weeks, but <laughs> we're hanging in there. I um I I it will be the only uh, I'll give you a break and be the only person who doesn't have a child myself to give you advice on. Here's what you got to do. <laughs> all right, you know what? Scratch that. I'm going to give you two pieces of advice right nice. now. Okay. First of all, now is the time. You know how you know how everybody you, everybody spooked you real bad about. Oh, look out! Because once you have a baby, your your life is no longer yours. You're never going right. to get to leave the house. So on and so forth. Then the baby comes and you realize, wait a second, could, the baby seems to sleep a fair amount. Right. Now, I'm not saying that you and the uh, the old lady go out and leave the baby at, at home alone. The, Instead, dogs, the dogs will be put, with her. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. No. Uh, here's what you do. You put the baby in the little, you know, the, the carry, the carrying case, the convenient portable <laughs> uh, baby carrier thing, whatever you call that thing that you plugs into the, right. into the seat. You take that into any restaurant. I'm telling you, it doesn't make a difference how loud it is. You sit there. You have your dinner at your favorite places. Your old lady will love it because she's been, you know, she's been a caged bird during pregnancy. You go out. You trip the light fantastic. You let her booze it up all night. Maybe even take a cab, whatever you want to do. But baby will sleep the whole way through. And you'll think, wow, this baby uh, raisin is much easier than everybody made it out to be. Come month two or three, it'll change. But you have a window right now where you can take the baby out. They will sleep through any amount of noise, and you can still do as you always have. So I say take advantage of that right now. And two, master, you learned it when you were – if you took any of these baby courses, the swaddle. Oh, yeah. You have to wrap the baby up real tight. Make them like a mummy. Make it tight as can be, and that's your key to success. Yeah, we got that down, a little baby uh, burrito. Yep, that's exactly a good way of describing it. Yeah, it's a blanket 
that you wrap them up real tight in and, and you think like, wow, I'm, and, and most mothers aren't good at it because they feel like they, they're more sensitive about like, I think that he or she, this hurts them. You know, no, it doesn't hurt them. Oh, she loves it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, wrap it up real good. They, yeah, they, even if they seem unhappy, they love it. <laughs> Are you a Dave lover or a dog lover, Dave? <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm both. I do love all days, right, yeah. including including Coulier, Winfield, and Letterman. I was trying to think of guys named Dave. Who right. else is a Dave rather than a David? Uh, Dave Justice? Uh, Dave Mustaine. I don't oh, love yeah. him. Dave. Uh, I'm Super Dave. Who else? But Super anyway, Dave. all right. Uh, I'm all right with dogs. I didn't like them when I was a child. Mm-hmm. Even the little ones scared me. Yeah, I, I just. I don't mind telling you. As Don added a human to the family, I added a dog named Colston. So Colston, yeah, nice. Yeah, he's a I, he's a sweet little fellow. He only weighs about six pounds, and that's about as big as he's going to get. But he's a really good little guy. That's nice. Yeah. I'm glad you went with the. He added the ass for Colston for your pal Marcus because uh, that's way better than Colton for Colton or yeah, that no, would be no, terrible no. One. Colston. The oh, there was it was down to two. It was Colston. You know, for a Saints reference or Animal for a Pearl Jam reference, mm-hmm. and uh, we went with Colston, so we we call him Cole sometimes. But so you almost so you almost went Animal. That would have been pretty good. Yeah. I always think it, I think it'd be funny to give a dog. I know you know some people like Letterman had a dog long ago named uh, Bob, which is funny. I think the next uh, the next way to go with that is to give them more even more mundane names like Glenn. Wouldn't it be fun <laughs> to have a dog named Glenn or Seth? Or Randy. Gussie. My buddy Rob had a dog named Clyde. <laughs> Clyde's pretty good. Yeah, I like I like that one. I also thought it would always be fun to name a dog Lefty. You know, somehow indicating something that, that, that yeah, that my, why is he Lefty? Because he's left-handed. Right. You know, <laughs> you know during, during college, Dave, I said, I just want to get a dog someday so I can name him Lucan after the Pearl Jam song Lucan because just, I thought it was just such a cool pet name. And then... This jerk over here, as soon as we got out of college, he went and had a dog and named it Lucan. Wow. Can you that believe is really, that? That is untowards. What that a, is terrible behavior. Poor yep. form, sir. Swiped like it that right one. out from under me. Sorry. That's a, yeah, that's pretty uh, pretty weak. You know, Pearl Jam, I wasn't aware of this until about maybe a year or two ago. I, obviously, you're diehard Pearl Jams with the many things you've said so far. Yeah, yeah, big fans. I've been to 72 I, shows. I was just going to say that. I had no idea that Pearl Jam was basically this generation's Grateful Dead, that yep. people tour with Pearl Jam and they spread around uh, bootleg tapes yep. and everything else. I had no idea that, that, was a, that there was a, a whole culture around that until very recently. It's glorious fun. It's super, super fun. The shows are great. Uh, I've been to over 70. Don's been to – how many have you been to, Don? 25 or 26. 25, 26. Um, wow, I actually, that is amazing. You know, it's really amazing. 2000, on the 2000 tour, binaural tour, I was uh, went to a show. Me and, it was Don's first show, actually, in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, we were we were walking around near the front, and I seen this this kid just standing <laughs> there, kind of a little bit depressed and uh, had like a sourpuss on, and I couldn't understand. And I went up to him. I'm like, what's going on, man? He's like, oh, I got an extra ticket I'm trying to sell. I'm like, oh, where is it? He's like, oh, fourth row. And I like kind of pulled him away because I didn't want anyone else to hear he was trying to sell a fourth row ticket. So I ended up buying it from him for he just wanted face value. And I went to go to go uh, see the seat right before the show, and he's he's sitting there crying basically. And I took him out and I bought him a drink and got to know him, and we're still friends to this day. 
but by one of my How best friends, that? Matt Matt okay. Billiter. From Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, from the banks of the Three Rivers. I, that's why I'm in the city all the time. Wow, what a weird and uh, and uh, weird story to tell, and I hope you'll uh, tell it to Eddie Vedder and company someday. <laughs> all right, Dave. Um, last thing before we let you go, tell us a little bit more about this contest, where we go to enter, because I want to win. I want to go to a football game with you. Well, um, yeah, and before that, I'm going to the draft and to Canton, of course, for the induction ceremony and so on. But, uh, yeah, go to NFL.com, and it's Ultimate Road Trip. There's a whole page set up with my uh, my uh, puss looking back at you, and there are a couple episodes up there now. There's one of you go to NFL.com. It's up on the, uh, on the main page there. But uh, track down Ultimate Road Trip, and you'll uh, find all the details there. You can send an email address over, and uh, we'll see what happens. But, um, yeah, it should be a good time. A lot of traveling coming up, but it uh, should be a gay old time going all over the country with, uh, like I say, the bucket list kind of stuff. What, uh, what are your plans now that football is going to be dark a bit here? Are you just going to still be doing a podcast a week right through, or what are the plans for the show? Yeah, I you know today being February twenty eighth, the time of this recording, um, we were supposed to do a podcast today, but I just couldn't stomach it. It is, of course, the one year anniversary of uh, the yeah. demise of Dave's of Thunder, perhaps the greatest uh, podcast uh, in the history of podcasting that I was a part of. So I just couldn't be a part of it uh, of podcasting. But yes, we will do at least one podcast, if not more every week in the off season. I want to ramp it up. You know, most people at the NFL are kind of like, well, what are we supposed to do on a podcast when it's not football season? I say, this is Damashek time. This is when I can, <laughs> this is when I can, I can talk for 45 minutes about uh, Tom Green, Sinbad versus Rob Zombie. You know, this is, this, this is when I really uh, like to like to be yapping about stuff. But of course I'll settle into doing a lot of, um, you know, but it's time. We're just about there, fellas. Time to start watching some, puck playoffs and yeah. nba playoffs and uh, you know summertime rolls around then it's time to make a trip out to the sea like you said it, it's not football season it's hooey and applesauce season thank you thank yeah. you yes i appreciate you listening that's very nice of you all right dave thank you very much for being on the show at damashek and uh we'll look forward to catching up with you in a couple months here I look forward to it, fellas. And in the meantime, muzzle tub on the, the the first addition to the podcast, the first uh, sp- the first child born <laughs> into the podcast, and and also to uh, uh, you know also congratulations on the puppy. I guess yeah, I feel <laughs> bad saying that it diminishes the birth of a human baby. That's right. I know how dog owners are; they think it's the same thing. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, bud. All right, fellas. I'll uh, I'll keep it with you later on. All right. God, I love it when Dave Damashek is on the show. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. I, I like how we didn't uh, <laughs> talk sports for most of it. You know, it's funny. When we when we get ready to interview Dave, I don't write anything down, really. Like, I don't have any notes. Like, I think with him, and maybe Jenkins is this way, too, maybe a couple other people, I just want to recreate the idea of just three guys kind of talking like we were at a bar together. And we just kind of go from topic to topic, and I kind of, I kind of change my view of what I'm supposed to do in that interview, and I kind of feel like my job is just to get us from topic to topic, and that's it. Well, with Dave, it'd be tough to do a lot of show prep uh, 
for 10 minutes of talking about Sinbad, right, Tom Crane. Yeah, and I never knew that was coming. <laughs> right. All right. We're going to make a left turn here. We're going to go way, way off the normal beaten path. We're going to try something different. Last Sunday was the 84th edition of the Oscars. And uh, judging by comments everywhere, it was a really poor edition of the Oscars. Yeah, it was. Twitter, I mentioned this maybe on Facebook or on Twitter, but Twitter made it watchable because guys like Norm MacDonald are absolutely hilarious. Uh, Norm, for me, became – I've always liked Norm, but last year's Oscars, I followed him on Twitter, and he was hilarious. He, like, live-tweeted the whole thing, and he would just say ridiculous things about how instead of thinking, like, the producers and stuff people should be thinking the computers for all these movies and he thought the wolfman should have won an oscar and just goes off about ridiculous things so twitter made it made it watchable but otherwise it was totally boring yeah um we're not gonna we don't know enough about movies to like make a top 10 list of ways to change the oscars or make them good or anything like that instead what we're gonna do is we're gonna give you our list of our top 10 best picture winners and it's kind of funny because we're younger guys. I mean, neither of us have seen very many movies from the 30s or the 40s. No. Uh, our list, my earliest movie on my top 10 is 1972. So keep that in mind. I mean, these are our, not necessarily our top 10 movies of all time. Not at all. But our list of the top 10 best picture winners. All right. Uh, I'm going to preface this. Like you said, we haven't seen many of these. I've seen 16 of the 84 best pictures. So it's not very good. And I'm someone that considers myself like a movie movie fan, maybe a buff or aficionado would be a little bit far. But uh, two of those 16 movies, I don't think I've ever sat down to watch Start to Finish, and that's Silence of the Lambs and Rocky. So I kind of took them out of the equation, and, and that's kind of sad from a someone that does a sports podcast not to have seen Rocky. No kidding. Uh, <laughs> so my list has nothing that – I haven't even seen anything from the Oscars before 1976 – so that right away outs me for not having seen either of the Godfather movies, which uh, you immediately gave your, me your box set to go take home. Yes. I haven't seen Cuckoo's Nest uh, and then other movies like Casablanca. Pl- Platoon, no. Unforgiven, Gladiator, <laughs> lots of good movies. The, and even my top ten, which I'll start with now, like ten through eight are kind of just in by default because I have so Yeah, so just give from. us those three together. All right, uh, number ten, uh, 1998's Best Picture, that's Shakespeare in Love. Maybe one of the first movies I went to with my wife. I liked it uh, a little bit on the girly side, but I did like it. Uh, number nine, Million Dollar Baby. It's a good movie. Uh, it's it's humorless and it's depressing though, so it's hard. It's a hard one for me to really like love. Uh, and my number eight is American Beauty. So uh, weird, cool movie. When I first saw it, it was different than anything I'd probably seen. Yeah, my number ten was Rocky. The reason I think Rocky's lower is because Rocky isn't my favorite from the Rocky series. Okay. I actually like Rocky Four the best. Number nine is Braveheart. It's just so long. It's probably why it's a little bit lower in my list than maybe it could be. And number eight is The King's Speech, which is the winner at the last, the 83, 83rd edition of the Oscars. And I really like this movie, um, and uh, I, really, I really did enjoy it. All right, I'll do uh, seven through five now. Seven being... Uh... Crash on my list. That's 2005's Best Picture. Big ensemble moving hit movie has the feel of like a, a Snatch or a Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels or any of those like Guy Ritchie type movies. It's cool. Uh, it's kind of like an everything comes together in the end type movie. It would have you believe that 
everybody is racist if you watch it. Uh, just nobody seems to like each other until these circumstances that everyone kind of helps each other. It's a cool movie, but uh, it is what it is. That's why it's at number seven. Braveheart is my number six. Uh, that's 1995's best picture. Again, when I saw that when I was younger, it was awesome, awesome movie. It's just it's so long, like you said. I think it's like three and a half hours long, so it's one I probably haven't seen in its entirety since maybe the first time I watched it. And number six is Forrest Gump, which uh, is a cool movie. I like it, but it gets bumped down my list a little bit because it. I think it bumped out a movie that is more deserving in Shawshank. Yeah, and we'll talk about some snubs later. Uh, my number seven is American Beauty from 1999. You mentioned it. It's one of those movies that when I first when I went to the theater to watch it, I had never seen anything quite like it. Yeah, kind of changed my perspective of what you could do with the medium of movies. Yeah, very artsy for a mainstream movie. Uh, number six, I have Gladiator. It's another one I can't believe you haven't seen. I know. You mentioned that uh, maybe Shakespeare in Love is the girliest movie on the list. Well, Gladiator could be the most manly. And number five, I have Forrest Gump as well. I love Forrest Gump. It's great. But again, I think Shawshank should have won the award in 94. And you could also make an argument for Pulp Fiction, which is all, was also nominated that year. All right, my number four is uh, the newest one on my list. That's 2008's Best Picture, Slumdog Millionaire. When doing this list, I looked at some of the, uh, obviously Wikipedia is everything, but uh, 2008, I talked about this year being a slow year for movies. 2008 was pretty slow. It only had like five other movies nominated, and Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Frost Nixon, Milk, The Reader. I saw The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It was okay. It's definitely not Best Picture material, but I, I really liked Slumdog Millionaire. It's kind of a cool uh, flashback movie told through a game show. So, I mean, real original concept. And uh, Frida Pinto's gorgeous, like the lead actress in it. I'm a big fan of hers. All right. My number four movie is The Godfather Part One from 1972. One of uh, the great movies of all time. My number three is 2001's A Beautiful Mind. A real cool movie. Uh, it almost feels a little bit like two movies. There's a part when he. You don't know he's lost his mind. Spoiler alert. Like, you don't know he's crazy. And then the part where you realize he's crazy and uh, how it all kind of comes together. And a very cool movie. If you haven't seen it, it's hard to talk too much about it without giving much away. But uh, check it out for sure. My number three is The Silence of the Lambs. I'm a big fan of the Hannibal Lecter series. Um, I liked Hannibal and I liked Red Dragon as well. So I'm a big fan of The Silence of the Lambs. And uh, it's a movie I probably shouldn't have been watching. When I first seen it, based on my age, I think I might have snuck HBO in the bedroom. And yeah, you probably would have been like ten or eleven. Yeah, I was about eleven when it came out, so maybe twelve when it's on HBO. And I'm not so sure that. Well, it's a it's a nasty movie. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, my number two is nine. Is the oldest one on my list is 1988's Rain Man. It's one of them movies that maybe I don't have like the encyclopedic knowledge I do of some of my favorite movies, like things like Dumb and Dumber and that type of thing. But uh. It's one of them that I w- I'll always watch when it's on. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I love Rain Man. I think it's Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. I think it's their best work. I think they're really great in the movie. And I, again, I'll, I'll watch this movie anytime. Tom Cruise's second best work might be the uh, the Jewish agent in Tropic Thunder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> have you seen that? Yes, I That's have. That's hilarious. That's a great movie, too. Yeah. That was a nominee, wasn't it? Uh, I think... 
uh, it won awards. Iron Man. I can't think of his name. Yeah, Robert Downey. Robert Downey Jr. was nominated for supporting yeah. actor or something like that. Okay. Uh, this brings me to my number one on my list is 2006's The Departed. Uh, another big ensemble, huge mob infiltration movie. Really, really cool. Uh, that's the best way to describe it. It's just a really, really, really cool movie. Yeah, I can't believe I, I kind of overlooked it. Uh, my number one is The Godfather Part Two from 1974. Just when you ever look at a top 100 movies of all time, it's usually not too far from the beginning. And I'll admit that if it wasn't for The Sopranos, I would have never probably went near The Godfather films. But I yeah, became I so so interested in the genre in general. I can't believe I haven't yet. That I, I went for it. But, you know, we talked about how we both thought that Shawshank uh, from 94 was maybe a snub. I wrote down some others. Um, broadcast News in 87 instead of The Last Emperor. Uh, Fargo in 96 instead of The English Patient. Uh, Field of Dreams in 1989 all day over Driving Miss Daisy. Uh, Apocalypse Now over Kramer vs. Kramer. Uh, maybe Taxi Driver over Rocky in 1976. Uh, Saving Private Ryan over Shakespeare in Love in 1998. I can't believe that happened. And Goodfellas, 1990, over Dance with Wolves. One other one, all those snubs were movies that were actually nominated for Best Picture. But for some reason, in 1984, The Karate Kid went unnominated. (laughs) And uh, it's much better than Amadeus and definitely should have won the Best Picture. It's clearly better than Amadeus. Clearly better. It's clearly better than any film that came out in 1984, 5, 6, 7, or 8. And I could probably keep going. It wasn't even nominated, you're saying. I find it hard to believe. Yeah, because the weird thing is Mr. Miyagi won for Best Supporting Actor. Right. Daniel Sun won for Best Actor. Elizabeth Shue won that year for her role for Best Actress. It won Best Screenplay, Best Director, and right. it wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, that's, that's hard to believe. I've, I've never seen that happen in a movie before. Really weird. All right, we don't know anything about movies. Let's uh, (laughs) take a break and come right back with Dan Levy. Our next guest is from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and it's a graduate of Rutgers University. No, I am not. No, he's not. He is a pioneer in the broadcasting industry, having recorded over 500 episodes of the critically acclaimed On the DL podcast. He is a former writer for SportingNews.com and was a contributor to the WashingtonPost.com. He is also the creator of 609 Design. Today, he is a national lead writer and senior analyst for the website Bleacher Report. His Twitter feed is one of the most critical and entertaining. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Dan Levy. How are you doing today, Dan? Good, thank you. But yeah, so ex- no. explain to me my confusion in the Rutgers thing. I... I went to Rutgers and then I worked at Rutgers. Okay, so you were a student at Rutgers would have been the better way to put it. I believe I can qualify as an alum. As an alum. Okay. Depends on your definition of alum. <laughs> so it's uh, the last time we talked, Dan, it was the night before the last episode of the On the DL podcast. And you were stepping away from that and uh, stepping away for a bit, and since then, quite a bit has happened in your life, and you're over with Bleacher Report, which I think at the time was a surprise to a lot of people because it had never been necessarily on your on your favorite list, but tell me a little bit about Bleacher Report, kind of what you do there, and, and how how you've adjusted, and how you think you've become a, 
how you've been able to change some of the things you didn't like about it to to make it a better fit for yourself? That's a lot to answer. Um, let's put it this way. I didn't think I was going to do anything. I was happy sort of being retired from the blog world. And then they called and said, we're starting a program for lead writers, which is something that I had said on my show all the time, that they needed to get a professional subset of writers in there and, and focus on them. And they said, we're doing, not not because I suggested it, but we're doing that and we want you to be a part of it. And at first I, I was unsure what to do. And I said, well, if you can bring my friends along with me, it would make it a lot easier. And I gave them a list of people and they hired them. Josh Zirkel, Bethlehem Scholes. Uh, <clears throat> at the time, Dan Rubenstein came on. Now he's moved on, but we have a few other guys who have come on recently. They really have upped the quality of writing. It was a big concern for me for years, sort of as a pundit, talking about the quality of Bleacher Report. And they said, you're right. We need to do something about it. And, and they wanted me to be a part of that. And it was tough to say no. So do you think that you've uh, had a positive effect? Like as you look back at the first probably phase of this time that you've had at Bleacher Report, how do you think things are going? Is the writing improving at the pace that you like it to? I don't know. I mean, mine is. I think I think that uh, they asked us to come in and do what we do. I mean, we we, we had a lot of conversations about that. You know, we can't four people, and now it's going to be up to thirty five people in, in this lead writer program. Can't change eight thousand writers. It's impossible to change. 8,000 writers, but I think we can hold people accountable. And I think we can give people who may have looked sideways at Bleacher Report before, they can take a second glance now and say, okay, one, they're trying. And two, there is some quality content. It may be harder to find uh, than at other sites, but it's easier to find than it was because they're smart now. They're not just putting a bunch of stuff, uh, as I called it on my show a couple weeks ago, um, it's not just sugary cereal. There are vegetables now, and it might be candied yams, but at least it's vegetables. So I think that that's what you're giving people. It's a little bit more of a balanced diet of sports. You know, when I was telling people that you were going to be on the show this week, one thing that I was surprised that a few people asked me is, what is Bleacher Report? Um, I guess maybe we're so close to to the to the blogosphere and we, we talk about this stuff all the time, but I think maybe the more casual sports fan isn't necessarily familiar with it to the level that I expect it anyway. How would you explain what is Bleacher Bleacher Report. What do you think its niche is out there in the uh, in the sports internet? I'm I'm actually interested to see who doesn't know about it. I mean, I, I would think maybe more traditional. It, look, it's not USA Today, it's not Sports Illustrated, but it's the, the fourth or fifth largest sports property, sports website, not even network, just actual specific site in the country right now. I mean, the the site is huge. I can see that people don't necessarily read it, and I think a lot of that had to do with the initial reputation. But I'm actually a little bit surprised that people hadn't even heard of it. Um, that being said, I think most of the audience isn't our little blog world. Most of the audience at Bleach Report are not people who care about the quality or lack thereof of the articles at Bleach Report. We get so caught up in that. But what I learned in going over there is there is a, a large number of people who enjoy a lot of the stuff that they offer, who enjoy funny videos, who enjoy the slideshows. So they're not going to just get rid of that stuff because there's an audience for that. It's just a matter of upping the level of quality. They don't want bad writing, and there is a lot of that. There's a lot of that on the Internet anywhere. It just so happens that they got caught a bunch of times with some articles that got through the editing process. The, 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 the issue was never really the writing. It was more the editing, and they've done so much in the back end to fix the editing process uh, that I think that's done more for the site behind the scenes that's done more for the for the quality of the site than anything I would ever write. You know, surprisingly we're almost uh into the third month of 2012 
And I guess one thing I'm curious to hear what you think is we've talked a little bit about what's bad. You know, you mentioned some of the mistakes that Bleacher Report have made in the past, but I'm wondering what you think right now is good. Where, where do you go to find the best writing on the internet? What do you find yourself reading over and over? Maybe it's a website, maybe it's a, a writer, maybe it's a combination of both. Twitter. I, I think i am sort of been indiscriminate. There are certain websites I don't click on or don't go to, and there are certain writers that I won't read just because I think that they're trolls and I think that they're just trying to get attention for the sake of attention. Uh, but there, most of I, I don't think that there's any place that I specifically would gravitate toward other than my Twitter feed. And obviously, I choose who to follow. So I think by choosing those people, I'm more likely to read their articles. But I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if, if for example, if I'm reading about the Daytona 500, I happen to click on the first link. It was Dan Wetzel, and that's the first place that I went because he happened to be the first guy to come into my Twitter feed at the time that I was up. If the first Twitter feed had come from somebody who I like at ESPN or somebody who I like at Fox, then you know I probably would have clicked on that first. So I think that's just sort of how most people's patterns would go. And then it's just a, a matter of figuring out who to follow. And I think for me, I mean, I follow pretty much everyone just because I feel like I, I'm, I want to pay attention to what's going on in sports media. Uh, but but by and large, I try not to pick and choose. There are great Wetzel's a great writer. There are great writers out there, and I think a lot of the guys at Yahoo have have as much quality or more than anyone. Um, so I think if you if you had to put a gun in my head and said if you could only list, read one sports site, I'm not going to say Bleacher Report because I work there. I would probably go with Yahoo on a quality level. But I, I genuinely think it depends on who's in my Twitter feed at the time. You mentioned Wetzel. Did you happen to read his uh, piece on Brady night of the Super Bowl? Were you as blown away by it as everyone seemed to have been? <sighs> Here's my thing about Dan Wetzel, and I think he's great. When I, this is getting so inside media, but when I try to write something, I, I'm, I, I'm always aware of how it's going to come across to the people who don't buy in. So if, if you write something that's flowery and, and esoteric and wonder, like Spencer Hall, for example, he writes just this phenomenal winding road of, of, of prose and, and whatnot. And, 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 I always look at it and say, what if somebody doesn't get this? How would they react to that? And I think Wetzel's like that too. Wetzel is one of the, the rare general sports columnists in the world who can put his feet into any story and it's as deep as the deepest end of the pool. And, and, and it's amazing that he can do that because it somehow comes off genuine, yet he swoops in, goes to Daytona for a weekend. Will he ever cover and I could be wrong on this, but will he ever cover NASCAR the rest of the year unless something big happens? He's going to go and, and talk about the Summer Olympics. Like, he covers the shot put 365 days a year. And it's a unique skill to do. That being said, I have a tendency to try and look through that. And I'm like, man, I wonder if he's sitting there in the press box writing saying, this is going to be my Pulitzer. Or, you know, and I wonder if, if, right. if it just overwhelms him or if that's how he's actually sort of gaming the system. Either way, it's brilliant. But I do wonder if he's sort of aware of how brilliant he's being. I mentioned in the intro, uh, just to try to get this back a little bit, you said it was getting a little too inside media, so let's pull it back a bit. I mentioned the On the DL podcast, and I was a huge fan of it, and you started a new show. Tell us a little bit about the new podcast. I know you interviewed Kermit. Uh, props there. Uh, never even thought to try to book Kermit. But uh, tell me about the new show, how you think it's doing, and maybe how it compares to the old On the DL podcast. Uh, it's ostensibly the same show. I mean, it's it's a little different. We do two shows a week instead of every day. Uh, Mondays, we do more of traditionally what we used to do with The Daily Show, um, where it's just a recap of the things of the weekend. And we, we stay pretty hyper-focused to sports media, but we talk about just sort of the general goings-on in sports. 
Um, Wednesday's show, we've tried to get a bigger guest or, or a guest of some sort of sports media prominence. Uh, you mentioned Kermit the Frog. Yes, that you would not be able to book Kermit. That was a, <laughs> the, you know, that, that's, and I mean, that's some of the stuff. We're going to do some more fun stuff. I mean, it, that's not what the show is normally. I talked to Chris Fowler a couple weeks ago. I mean, a lot of the guests that you guys seem to be pulling in are people that we would target. Um, and again, I think it's it's pretty inside media, but it's a little bit of sports. I talked to Rob Stone the other day, who's at Fox Sports now, and we spent half the show talking about his move from ESPN to Fox, which is interesting to the media nerds, and then half the show talking about the lay of the land in soccer and how Fox is going to start covering the sport when they have the World Cup in a couple of years, and then nuts and bolts on the EPL and nuts and bolts on the actual uh, matches that he gets to cover. So it goes, sort of runs the gamut from the person I'm talking to, like, sort of like what you're doing here, and then eventually into the sports they cover. Right. You know, it's funny you mentioned Rob Stone because I was watching the little uh, Pete Weber meltdown, the the video from when he, he won the, uh, the, the the bowling. And I was like, wait a minute, that isn't Rob Stone. So I went and Googled it. I'm like, oh, he moved to Fox. I, I missed that. But uh, the show used to, the DL podcast, you used to do a lot of politics. And I wonder with the election coming up, are you going to dip your toes in that at all again? Because I always like that part of your show, I think. I have been told by my overlords at Bleacher Report that I am not allowed to talk about politics, although my show, uh, my, my, the site that I do is bleacherreport.com slash wide left, so I think people can understand where I come from. <laughs> I, I have a, a, lar- uh, a, no pun intended, large disdain for my governor of the state of New Jersey, and I think I made that abundantly right. clear over Twitter, so the, the people at Bleacher Report are a little nervous that I'd go off the rails just ranting about him. Uh, so I have a no politics edict. However... One of my good friends, Philip Stutz, who is a big-time GOP uh, strategist and and mover and shaker in D.C., uh, he and I were talking today, actually, about trying to do a a, a story or an interview on sports and politics and how how presidential candidates have used – and do not steal this from me. I am patenting this idea. How presidential candidates have used politics to help curry favor – with uh with voters and uh, case in point with Mitt Romney going down to Daytona I mean that made huge news where he's talking about and then he obviously bumbled that and said I I don't follow it all the time but I'm friends with a few of the owners which just completely took him out of the pocket of all the people who are thinking oh he's just like one of us Eh, no he's not so that kind of stuff we might talk about and Barack Obama doing the the picks we'll actually might time it around that where he does the picks for the uh, NCAA tournament um, so things like that. Politics and sports are very intermingled. So I'm going to try and sneak it in where I can. But I've been told, do not talk strict politics. As it gets closer to the election, I, you're going to be foaming at the mouth, though, huh? Nick and I, t- Nick Tarnowski, who I do the show with, and I talked about doing like a separate Tumblr site where we can just do like a separate show about that. I just don't know how how we're going to be able to do it. Right. So you don't. You're not. You're no fan of Chris Christie, huh? <laughs> not no, your, no, not, not your not kind of guy. No. Okay. Well, I, I actually like him. But we'll save that for another time. Well, uh, we can do it now if you want <laughs> because I'm fascinated and I'm sure your listeners are fascinated why anyone would like him. Well, I think what – You do not live in New Jersey. I do don't you? live in New Jersey, okay? So I have to admit that I'm limited to like what I can find on YouTube or you know the story that CNN did on him and uh, other things that I hear watching television. You know, I, I'm, I'm not around the day-to-day like I am for Andrew Cuomo, so to speak, because I live in New York. Right. So, so, so the point is, and this is the problem with everyone in America, seriously, and everyone in America, and I don't care who you like. I don't care if you, I mean, this is dem- not Democrat or Republican or anything. When you hear sound bites, this is like the sports side of things. We can bring it back to sports. When you like the sound bite of something and you hear it in context or out of context, but in a 30 second burst, 
you can make a determination whether or not you like someone. You know, think about like a, a guy like LeBron James. He could do all the different philanthropy and all this different stuff in the world, but because he's terse with someone or because he did that stupid decision on ESPN or because the King James tattoo, everyone makes an opinion up of him. So not every soundbite can be taken in context or out of context. We can make LeBron look like the worst human being in the world just by clipping the proper 30 seconds instead of the other 30 seconds. And I think that's interesting because if you look at Chris Christie's career, there are a lot of great soundbites. He's a good talker. Mm-hmm. He is great at a podium. He is not a good governor. I'm sorry. If people want this guy to be the president, good luck to you. I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> well, you know, I think so. You are saying, you know, you're you're wide left. I, if I were to name my site to try to describe myself, I would be slightly right. But then I might put, but socially moderate. <laughs> if that makes any sense, like when it comes to social politics, I'm I probably lean left. When it comes to economics and self-defense, I, I think that's where I tend to lean right. But I think what I like about Christie is seemingly his, abil- his ability to maybe give it straight. But I'm not New Jersey, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe yeah. no, he, what I perceive a- as straight is a, the slant that I get from seemingly everyone else. That's what I like about him, his ability to be what feels like non-political in a sense that he just gives it straight. And I think that we miss out on that constantly in New York State. I never know what is coming out of the right side or left side of the mouth. You know, It's fine. If you want a guy who's a straight shooter to be the president of the United States or the governor of your state or whatever, that's fine. That's great. And I appreciate the honesty. What I don't appreciate is when you bury your head and say, this is the way we're doing it. I'm not listening to anyone else. And when you and, and by the way, you want to talk about being a straight shooter. When the Philadelphia Inquirer does weekly articles about how you lie to people to their face and how you go up to other legislatures, legislators rather, and, and get them to vote for you, telling them that you'll back them and then publicly out them for basically taking a bribe from you. And then they're, they're shamed. It's amazing. It, yes, in a press conference, he's a straight shooter. Mm-hmm. He's the shadiest person you can imagine. If you actually go back into – I can't believe we're having this conversation. <laughs> if you actually go back into the dealings, seriously, just Google any – go to philly.com, anyone out there, and just type in Chris Christie and read some of these stories that he has done to the people who work basically for him in New Jersey and any state employee in the state of New Jersey, and you will see that it is not as straight as the shooting should be. Yeah, I mean, I'd be a long, long way away from knowing enough about him to vote for him. But it doesn't matter anymore. That's the thing with politics. And again, let's take it back from the GOP thing. It doesn't matter anymore. All we care about is sound bites. All we Barack Obama has no history. He didn't know. I mean, I mean, he might be a good president or not. I really don't know because all I know is what I see on TV. But the fact is, he was not prepared for this job. If you would have, if you would have put him up thirty-five, forty years ago in his career, fifty years ago, a hundred years ago. Did he have the political acumen as some of the people who were pre- – it's a different world now. You literally need two and a half years of service to qualify for the president. And it's sort of a weird – nobody wants the job, so people who are dangerously underqualified to run this country are getting these jobs. And it's it's a lot about timing. You know, like it was the perfect time for Obama because people were so fed up with the eight years that they had with Bush that, you know, it was almost – his opponent didn't matter really he was gonna based on the economy based on the way people were fed up with bush he was gonna get the job and i think that's kind of what you said in a way 
But uh, let's get this back a little bit before we let you go. It's Dan uh, Levy from BleacherReport.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Levy Thinks. How much of this is staying in the show? I mean, how much you honestly are cutting out? Because I'm generally, I'm little... I, I wouldn't cut any out. So unless oh, there's something that. you specifically want cut out, I'm going to leave it as is. Oh, I don't care. Trust yeah. me. Yeah, no, we 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 leave it as is. We don't we don't cut. I'm just wondering how the how like the Dave Damashek crowd is now listening to me. I assume, <laughs> I, I assume you're putting him on before me on this yes. on this show. So I mean, if they're still sticking around for this guy. They're I'm off the rails. Whoever's after me, I I apologize. Andy Strickland. Uh, Andy, I don't. I'm sorry, but <laughs> uh, good, luck, good luck with hockey talk after this. <laughs> I want to have one more mini debate with you before we let you go because it's one thing that we've disagreed on in the past, and it'll be interesting to see. You know, because it's one area where we definitely differ in style, and I've given you this compliment in the past. And I want to do it again. I, I think that I've learned a lot from listening to you, and I think that we've done some things in the show because of how well you've been able to do them. And I've always given you credit for that when it's come up. Um, one thing we've basically vehemently disagreed with is maybe to simplify it is how we use our Twitter feeds. And oh, you guys troll. Yeah, certain, yeah. Specifically, one way that we use our Twitter feed is to book guests. And you think that that's crazy or wrong or whatever – so set me straight a little bit. Tell me why. You no, think- that's not true. I don't think it's crazy or wrong. I don't. And I think it works okay. for you guys. I think the concern that you have. Right. You you use your Twitter feed by and large for the ability to reach out to people that you wouldn't otherwise be able to reach out to. Fair. I don't think you guys are using your Twitter feed to necessarily add anything to the conversation by and large. When you're doing that, at least. You're using it to promote your show. You're using it to... Uh, to try and get guests to then go back and promote your show. I look at Twitter differently because I don't think that that's providing, at least in my opinion, I don't think that provides value for the people who follow you. You guys have a couple hundred followers. I don't think you're providing any value for them by asking people to come on your show and then promoting your show. For me, look, I promote the stuff that I do. I certainly do because that's the audience that cares about what I'm doing. But I try and use it to entertain, inform, have a conversation with people, debate, extend the conversation a little bit more. So for me, I feel, and maybe it's just the difference, maybe, maybe, and I don't mean to sound smarmy about this, but maybe I'm just in a different situation in my career than you guys where I can can use, I think, more proper channels or more traditional channels to try and book guests. There have been times where I ask people on Twitter if they want to come on the show, certainly. Uh, but I try not to make that the first avenue. I try to exhaust every possible proper avenue, and that's usually going through PR. PR, people. right. Yeah. You know, the pro- I, think the, I think the problem for us is that we just can't find PR people that really care about us at all. Now, that's changing a little bit, like especially at Sports Illustrated. Look, at we've booked pretty much anyone you want to name at Sports Illustrated. It's been on the show. You know, Joe Poznanski was on our sixth show, and that bought us credibility to book Peter King, to book Tom Verducci. So when it comes to Sports Illustrated and booking a Sports Illustrated guest, most of them I can even just call on their cell phones. Um, but – and we're building a little bit of a relationship with ESPN that's come along, but like certainly Fox to try to talk to the to the PR people there, they just they're not interested in helping us. So see, I have to see, come see, up with another idea because, because for me, like I think it makes more sense to follow the. Pe- I mean, you should all follow the people on Twitter who you want to talk to, the writers and whatnot, and the writers are usually good about it. And I'm not saying you should go through the PR people and not the writers. What I like to do is just. I'll send them a message, say, hey, I have a question for you. Can you direct message me your email address? And then I'll ask them off 
lying. Because one, I think you sort of force the hand of people when you're asking, you're sort of outing them publicly when you ask them to be on the show. Right, but I understand they, that part of it. I if feel they bad say about no, that. they're sort of a jerk. Right. That's why uh, they say nothing. Everyone who's ever said no to us has just done it by not saying anything. That's interesting. See, I would never do that. If somebody asked me a question to be on the show, I think that's worse. I think yeah. ignoring you. I mean, it depends who it is, I guess. If you're sending it to somebody who's got 400,000 followers, they may not even see it if they're right. getting, you know. I, I don't know. Again, I think it's just a different philosophy. I use Twitter maybe differently than that. Uh, and it's not to say that I haven't. It's not to say that I haven't booked guests or set up guests. Um, and I have asked people sort of jokingly, said like, hey, I want to interview you. or or. But I, 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 I don't know. It's just I always see you guys doing it. And look, you guys get better guests than me. You guys legitimately have – I mean, I'm not – it's not for lack of want, but I'm saying you guys have had an unbelievable guest list in the time that you've been doing the show. And it's a, it, it's, it's a testament to how hard you guys are working to get guests. I'm not saying what you're doing is wrong. I'm just saying it's not for me. Right, and that's fair. Let, can I tell you one example of, of – uh, let me just tell you this one scenario and see what you, see what you think. So there was a uh, host of a NFL pregame show that is on Twitter – that I asked if he'd be interested in being on the show. You can say Rich Eisen. It's okay. It's not Rich Eisen. It's actually Kurt Menefee. Oh, yeah. Kurt Menefee, who, by the way, guessed on the show a few weeks ago. Okay. So you got him. I didn't. You got Poznanski. That's fine. He still hasn't <laughs> been on the show. All right. So I asked Kurt Menefee if he'd want to be on the show, and he said he'd love to do it, but he wouldn't feel comfortable doing it unless I asked Dan Bell, I believe his name is, PR guy at Fox, if we booked it through him. Right. So he gave me his email address and said, you know, shouldn't be a problem. So I emailed Dan and Dan said to me, yeah, uh, Tuesday we want to do it. He's like, you know, uh, remind me Tuesday and, or remind me Monday and I'll set it up. Well, Monday happened to be a holiday. So when I messaged him on Monday, he didn't respond and that was because he wasn't checking email. It was a holiday. And then I tried him again that on Tuesday morning and – I, I just never got Dan. You know, like Dan just never found it to be, you know, it, it just never happened. And I don't know why. And because Kurt, Kurt wanted to do it, you know, so. Or he kicked it to his PR guy to say no to you. You never know. I mean, right, Kurt's right. a good that's, guy. That's look, other, he would do it. He, I mean, he right. would certainly do it. I, I don't think that he would say no. But at the same time, there are proper channels. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, Somebody like Rob Stone, he had to check with his people at Fox. And he told me after he already said yes and we already had booked a time, let me double check and make sure that this is cool with the PR people. Yep, that's because, happened to us too. Because I did an interview with a good friend of mine who I've known for 25 years and, and I got dinged a little bit because <laughs> they, you know, they need to approve this stuff. Listen, right. you're talking about super huge protective media companies, ESPN, Fox, NBC, Sports Illustrated for that matter, any of these companies – it's not so much that they want to protect what their talent says. It's that they want to make sure that they're aware of what their talent is saying. Right. And if anybody comes on your show and the PR people don't know about it, it's going to be their ass if that person happens to say something that's incendiary, happens to say something that makes headlines. And the PR people have their pants down because they don't even know about the interview. Right. I worked at PR for 10 years. I know how much of a pain in the ass it is to book guests or to get people on certain shows, or especially athletes. And I worked in college, so it's college athletes. It's, it's, you need to be aware of it as a PR person. So that's part of the reason. Having been a PR person, 
I try not to circumvent them. And I think it's helped me in the long run with relationships because now they trust me. They know I'm going to ask good questions, but they also know I'm going to do it the right way. And I think you mentioned that Fox doesn't necessarily give you the time of day. They might be, be it might in a way be because you're trying to backdoor their PR stuff. Right. You know what's interesting though is right before the Menifee thing, we had Mike Pereira on and we booked that through the PR staff. Well, it was the same, basically same scenario. I asked Mike. Mike said, well, you got to ask this PR guy. PR guy said, great. We set it up. Mike had a great time. Said he'd be more than glad to come on next season. Okay, so then why didn't you... So I don't know what happened with Kurt. Wait, wait, no, so, so this is great. And I'm this, yeah. let's use this as a learning experience. <laughs> yeah. This is a coaching on the sportscasters here. Dan coaching Steve. Go ahead. If you went, if you went to Mike Pereira on Twitter and said, Mike, I'd like you to have, I'd like you to come on the show, and he said, that's great, but you have to talk to our PR office, and then you reached out to the PR office and they set it up. Yeah. Why wouldn't you then go back? Now you have a PR contact. Mm-hmm. You know, the PR person clearly was aware of that interview, and most likely, if they're any good at their jobs, which the guys at Fox are, either listened to your show or made sure to read the write up of your show and, and, and account for it. Why wouldn't you then take that relationship that you've now developed and cultivate that by writing back to the PR guy, hey, Mike was great. These, this is the list of the next five people I want to have. Here are some dates. I want to start with Kurt Menefee because we're still in the football season. He would be great. Can we set something up? Instead of going to Menefee on Twitter first and saying, hey, Kurt, can you come on the show? And then he kicks you back to the same PR guy that you already have. So well, now you've really – I mean I'm not saying you did. No. But in, in theory, maybe you pick the, you tick off the PR guy. Just go through him. He could have done it all for you. I did send that PR guy an email and he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't represent Kurt. There are two different PR guys. Pierre's and Kurt's were different. That's fine, but then why not then say, well, who does, and go to that? I mean, you know what I mean? Right, that's, yeah. That's the channel. If you're going to do this business, and if you're going to be in this business for a long time, that's the channel to explore next. Right. It's not the talent you need to reach out to. It's the people who book the talent. And, and, and look, it's easy on Twitter to get people. It is, and you're doing a good job at that. I'm just saying you had an opportunity there. The door was open through the PR, the PR office. They can easily kick you over to the other guy and weave through that way, and they'll help you get anyone you want. They'll, they'll go to their talent for you and say, this is a good show. You should do it. I've gotten more interviews that way from people who didn't even know me because the PR people will vouch for me. Right. Yeah, very interesting. Interesting stuff. Uh, this is why we love you, Dan get, Ivey. Get Damashek, get Dave Damashek back on the show, and, and he'll tell you the exact opposite. <laughs> he'll probably be like, "No, this guy's an idiot." Just email people or call them on the cell phone and just bombard them. Yeah, hey, you know we we have to balance all the different kind of advice, you know, and and you know some people like to do things this way, some people like to do it this way. I certainly value you. You're, you have a great track record, great success. I love the stuff you do, and I want to make sure that our listeners know. All about it. So it's at Dan Levy thinks. Levy. Dan Levy thinks. <laughs> That's a Western New York thing, by the way. That would be. Amazing. It's a Canadian thing. We'll get into that another time. <laughs> uh, Dan Levy at Dan Levy thinks. L E V Y uh, thinks. That's Twitter. Um, you said it's Bleacher Report slash Wide Left. A Bleacher right. Report, right? Correct. And how do we find the podcast? Just right. It's there. on there too. It's if right you go on, there. yeah. If you go on to Wide Left, it's. It's linked on there through just in regular posts. There's a show usually around nine nine o'clock every Monday and Wednesday. You can check out the show. You can also get it on iTunes if you search Bleacher Report on iTunes. All right, Dan. Thanks a lot. I had fun. Uh, Thank it's you. Fun kind of debating with you. I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed it and uh, love to do it again sometime. And and uh, good luck at Bleacher Report. And uh, we'll talk soon. No sweat. And good luck to the guy after this because again, <laughs> I apologize for losing the audience. <laughs> thanks, Dan.
All right, special thanks to Dan Levy for being on the show today. And um, I just want to do a quick book club update before we get going and get Andy Strickland in here to talk NHL and NHL trade deadline. We closed out the book club of the month for February last week, and that was Gene Wojciechowski's The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky, and the 2.1 seconds that changed college basketball. And the interview that we did with Gene was really great, and it's a part of Season 2, Episode 7. If you want to check that out, you can find that at our website, www.sports-casters.com. But in between last week's show and this week's show, I got my copy of the new book club book of the month, and that is Roy McGregor's Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey. It's a compilation of pieces that Roy has written in his career. Uh, I spoke with Roy. He's going to join us at the end of March to talk about it. And I talked to our lawyer, Don, uh, Mr. Wise, and he mentioned that he will be reading along with us as well. No oh, good. So you don't want to look stupid in front of the lawyer, Don. <laughs> You're going to have to read your book, do your homework this month. But, uh, yeah, I've started it, and it's great. You can kind of skip around. It's sectioned off really good, and I wrote, read a really intriguing article uh, about Alexander Dagg, uh, the former so, supposed savior of the uh, Ottawa Senators franchise. What year was uh, Dagg drafted, Don? Not 1998. No, you know, it was 1993. That. Yeah, of course. Good way to have that with that knowledge there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, Dagg, uh, it was some really interesting stuff about – things that he got into, uh, the way the pressure in Ottawa ruined him as a player. And it's definitely one an article I'm going to want to talk to to Roy about. But again, it's Wayne Gretzky's Ghost. It's an absolutely brilliant-looking book. And I'm holding the cover up to you as if you could see it out there. But Don can see it, and he'll vouch for me that the cover is gorgeous. Yeah, it looks great. It looks like they took a photo from like a tree or something. He's on a pond. It's yeah, Wayne Gretzky's cool. on the cover. Yep. So a very cool, cool book. Hope you'll read it with us. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with Andy Strickland and talk about the NHL trade deadline. Our next guest is from Buffalo, New York, and is a graduate of Northern Arizona University. He is an award-winning reporter who has won several Missouri Broadcaster Awards and was named Best Reporter in St. Louis by the Riverfront Times in 2004. He covers the St. Louis Blues for 590 The Fan in St. Louis and is the creator of TrueHockey.com. He is a regular contributor on radio and television throughout the United States and Canada and coaches minor hockey with the AAA Blues organization in St. Louis. He is making his debut on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Andy Strickland. How are you doing today, Andy? Doing really well, guys. Thanks for having me. Always good to be uh, talking with people from Buffalo. You know, all my family's from there, so I get back there every once in a while and, uh, you know, wish the Sabres kind of had things going in a different direction. You know, they probably have the best owner in the NHL, you know, talking to players who yeah. play for the Sabres. They just say, you know what, this guy treats us unbelievably well. So hopefully things turn the corner there for the uh, for Sabre fans. Well, we're really excited to have you on today. Obviously, yesterday... You know, we're one of the few podcasts maybe out there that we talk a lot of hockey, and part of that is because we are from Buffalo and we love hockey so much here. But we're always looking for a new hockey guest, and we wanted to really get a fresh perspective on the trade deadline, and that was yesterday. So it's been a busy couple of days in the hockey world. So first of all, I should thank you for fitting us in because I know how crazy this time of the year is for everyone who's involved in covering hockey. But second, I think it's the most generic question out there, but 
It's the one that everybody wants to know, and that is who are the winners and who are the losers with this whole trade deadline thing. Well, you know, we'll find that out sometime soon based off of, first of all, the players who picked up, or for teams who picked up some rentals, you know, guys like the Paul Gostads, for example, Nashville made the deal there. They get Andre Castiz, and, you know, we'll find out come playoff time if they're the true winner or the true losers. I mean, you have some other teams who made some moves to get some players who, you know, they're hoping to find their way into the playoffs, and then you have teams that didn't do anything, teams like Calgary that kind of stood pat, a team like St. Louis, which is the team that I cover, uh, you know, most of my attention goes towards covering the St. Louis Blues. They elected to pretty much stay pat as well. So, you know, in terms of winners or losers, I mean, you could look at it on paper right now, and you could say Vancouver really helped themselves. You look at the Stanley Cup Finals last year, Brad Marchand ran wild over a number of players, uh, not only in the East, but obviously in the Stanley Cup Finals against the Canucks. And so they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to let that happen this year. Now, you can't build a team just based off of one opponent. You know, you had teams like the Dallas Stars who tried to do that for years, build rosters that could compete with the, with the Detroit Red Wings, and then they wouldn't even face the Red Wings come playoff time. But at the same time, there's no question Vancouver had an area they wanted to address. They wanted to become a little bit tougher, add some sandpaper, and they think they did that. So, uh, I like what Vancouver did an awful lot. I certainly like what, uh, what Nashville did. I like both their teams, uh, before the trade deadline, and I like them even more today. You know, one thing that Buffalo hockey fans miss out on quite a bit is Western Conference hockey. And for that reason, I was really kind of chuckled a few times yesterday when I heard people on local radio try to act like they're Corey Hodgson experts, and they've probably seen him play one or two hockey games. You see a lot more West Coast hockey than we do. What kind of kid did we get in exchange for for Zach Cassian? Well, he's got a lot of skill, there's no question. I mean, he's got the ability to potentially develop into a game changer. You're talking about a number one center, possibly number two center, depending who else you have on your roster. But here's a guy that fits in into your top six without a doubt. He brings skill. You know, the big question is, can he make other guys around him better? He really wasn't put in that position to do so in Vancouver, based off of the talent they have up the middle. But you know what? He's got an opportunity now in Buffalo to play with some pretty skilled players. And and you're getting a good player. I mean, this guy's had a lot of success going back to his junior days, obviously playing in the World Junior Championships, representing Canada, so he has a lot of experience. But, hey, the Canucks uh, and their scouting staff, their coaching staff, players who play in Vancouver, they've been raving about this kid all season long. And so some would say, wow, I can't believe they would give up on him. I don't think they're giving up on Cody Hodgson. I think they realize, you know what, we had a chance to bring back a player who fits a need, who also is a high, uh, you know, who's considered by a number of people throughout the hockey world as a guy who can really develop into a really, really good player down the road in Zach Cassian. Um, so I think this is a, a, a true hockey trade. You look at trade deadline deals and some players, you know, some teams will move assets for draft picks. This was a hockey trade that I think really uh, both teams are going to be satisfied with down the road. Cassian, for example, I know you guys have watched him an awful lot. Yeah. I have as well. And talking to some players in the Buffalo Sabres the last couple of days, they really like this kid. You know, I had scouts tell me he's a pure hockey player just because of the toughness he brings to the table. And some people say, you know what, once he matures as a player, uh, he skates better, he has better hands than a guy like Milan Lucic, who, of course, won a Stanley Cup with the Boston Bruins last year and is considered maybe the premier power forward in the NHL today. So, uh, is he as tough as Lucic? I won't go there right now, but still, um, it's a uh, it's a trade that I know Vancouver is very excited about, 
and they should be. And I think Buffalo Sabre fans should be excited about getting Hodgson, too, because once it's all said and done and this kid has truly matured and developed as an NHL player, uh, you're going to realize how good of a hockey player you got. He's good right now. How surprised were you that your St. Louis Blues kind of stood pat? I didn't. I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, they've got ownership issues right here, uh, right now, and and uh, you know when you have ownership issues and you're losing money, and they're not just bleeding money. Okay, they're hemorrhaging. Okay, they have no money whatsoever. Uh, the league is assisting them financially. So when you're in that situation, I think you have to be realistic heading into the trade deadline. And if they were going to make a move, it was going to be swapping contract for contract. So it had to be a dollar-in, dollar-out type situation. You can't add salary. So I don't think a lot of people who at least are close to the situation were surprised by the lack of movement. Now, with that being said, Doug Armstrong certainly looked into it um, and looked to make some moves. But I think the players he acquired about um, weren't moved. I mean, who was moved yesterday that you would honestly say fits a knee for the St. Louis Blues. I can't find one. Uh, maybe the uh, Adoya kid uh, out of Winnipeg who went to Chicago because the Blues were looking for a, a top-four D-man potentially. But at the same time, uh, uh, you know, Paul Gossett obviously is a good player, but it's not necessarily a need for St. Louis when you look at who they have up the middle right now with guys like David Backus and Patrick Berglund and Jason Arnett. They're pretty, uh, you know, set in that in that position. Right. So... Uh, of all the players Doug Armstrong looked to add yesterday, I don't think any of them got moved. What has went right for the St. Louis Blues this year? I, I know they were in the playoffs a few years ago. Um, they're 26-4-4 four and four at home, which just blows me away. Um, but what what has clicked for them this year? Obviously, Brian Elliott's probably going to be at the top of that list, right? Well, Brian Elliott, for sure, because he stabilized this hockey team early on this season when things weren't going right. You know, after 13 games, they fired the head coach. At the time, Elliott, I believe, was 5-1 and one on the year. You know, Yarrow Halak, who may all of a sudden play himself into Vezina consideration, not saying he's going to win it, but he may play himself into consideration in terms of being in that top three uh, category and, and get an invite out to Vegas. Um, you know, Brian Elliott was the guy who kind of saved this team because Halak was really, really bad early on. He struggled in training camp, and it carried over into the regular season. Then they fired Davis Payne, who was the head coach at the time, and they brought in Ken Hitchcock. And I think Elliott, along with Hitchcock, really saved the season for this hockey team. I think he brought them uh, some hope. I think he gave them the confidence that they can be a good team, that they can win. I think he tweaked a couple of things, but nothing too dramatic. But uh, I think, if anything, he really empowered a young group of hockey players to believe they can win and to come to the rink believing you can win. You know, Doug Armstrong added some pretty important players in the offseason with some winning experience. Guys like Jamie Langenbrunner and Jason Arnett, like I mentioned, even a Scotty Nickel, a veteran player who's been to the Western Conference Finals the last couple of years in San Jose. Uh, you know, these are winning hockey players, and they're winning players in the dressing room. And you've got a lot of young talent on St. Louis's roster, guys like Backus, guys like Oshie, David Perron, Patrick Berglund, Alex Petrangelo, Kevin Shattenkirk, Chris Stewart. I mean, we're talking about really good hockey players here. And I think bringing veteran guys who have won uh, can really help with young hockey players, especially young hockey teams. I mean, we're seeing it right now with other teams around the league, teams like the Edmonton Oilers. They've got a lot of young players and some really good players, but unless you surround them with the right players and winning players and create a winning environment, you're going to be kind of running in mud because it's really, really hard to win in the NHL without a veteran presence in the locker room, and the Blues finally got that this year. What's the general perception in St. Louis 
in terms of what kind of executive John Davidson has proved to be? Well, John Davidson, you know, I mean, there's a difference between what he does versus what a general manager does. And I think that's where, you know, the confusion maybe kind of lies uh, outside of St. Louis. I mean, this is Doug Armstrong's team. He's the one who's making hockey decision, uh, decisions. And before him, it was it was Larry Plough, you know, who had been the GM here for a long, long time before that. He was in New York with the Rangers, had a long, long history, a long run in the NHL. And, you know, John Davidson, as the president of hockey operations, kind of oversees everything. Certainly he has the final say over some moves. But I think, if anything, John Davidson hasn't gotten in the way of, you know, some certain things that, that Armstrong and Plo before him, uh, you know, wanted to get done. I mean, he's a smart hockey guy. He's been around for a long time. So I think he's been good in terms of giving the organization a face uh, really helped sell the hockey team and the organization and sell some tickets coming into this, uh, you know, when he first arrived five, six years ago. Because, hey, guys, at the time, things were really, really bad here in St. Louis. They weren't selling tickets. The team was 30th in the NHL. So right when J.D. gets here, they had the first overall pick. They take Eric Johnson with that pick. And all of a sudden, he start, uh, started selling hope. And um, I think people around town, fans, media alike, really bought in gravitated towards J.D., and so he's been a good fit as well. But there's no question from a hockey decision-making standpoint, Doug Armstrong, Larry Plo, Yarmo Kekalainen, who was in charge of the draft for a long, long time, who drafted a lot of the players I mentioned just a few minutes ago. Um, you know, all these guys, it's really been a team effort in terms of management who's here now, management who was here before. Um, you know, not just drafting guys real quick, making trades, you know, turning uh, rental players like Doug Waite and Keith Kachuk and Billy Guerin into first-round picks. And we don't see a lot of that right now in terms of rentals, uh, you know, getting traded for first-round picks. I know we saw that with Gostad yesterday. I'm not sure if there was another one. Um, so, you know, that's not that easy to do. But they drafted guys like Berglund late in the first round, Perron, Oshie, late in the first round. Where would this hockey team be if they missed on those picks late in the first round? So they've done a great job, but it really has been a collective group effort. Sounds cliche to say it, but it's the truth here in St. Louis. Has the uh, attendance come around as the team has made this run? Are they packing the building now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's crazy. People love hockey here in St. Louis. I mean, it's an all-out party. Games on Friday nights, Saturday nights. There's not a better atmosphere than anywhere here in St. Louis. I mean, people love going to hockey games. And really, guys, this is my 13th year covering the team. First year I covered the Blues, they won the President's Trophy in 99-2000. So they um, you know, were packing the house then. They were packing the house before that. This is a team that is a big part of the community here in St. Louis. So really outside of a year or two, you know, crowds have been very, very good. They continue to be strong this season, and it looks like the team's going to make the playoffs. So I know the spring's going to be an exciting time for hockey fans here. So my question, I guess, is you mentioned that the team is hemorrhaging money, but they're filling the building. The building, I think, is the same age as the – I know it's the same people built, the one here in Buffalo. Ours is in 96. I'm not sure when uh, – it was the Keel Center when I was there, but I know it's not that anymore. Uh, so arena isn't going to change, I wouldn't think. And so, what do they have to do to stabilize this situation and make sure that the Blues are in St. Louis long term? Well, they're going to have to raise ticket prices. Number one, ticket prices are very inexpensive here. The big source of your revenue uh, is through ticket prices, so that's the first thing. Um, and number two, let's be honest here, 
they're they're very heavy, top heavy in terms of the salaries they're paying a number of people on the business side. And I think new ownership, once they take over, they're going to have to address that almost immediately. In fact, I know they will. So, um, you know, when you're when you're, <laughs> there's a lot of things I could go into in terms of why maybe uh, they're lacking certain revenues. Um, but at the end of the day, they got to do a better job of, uh, of finding ways to generate money. I mean, this organization, you know, hey, food and concessions, little things like that, if you want to get real deep and analyze the situation. I mean, they sold off their concessions for $10 million for an upfront fee because the organization needed money in exchange for a 20-year contract. So I think, you know, the organization is getting somewhere like 35% off of all the concessions that they sell during the course of anything, from a blues game to a concert, from whatever. So they got the $10 million, I understand, but you sent a 20-year contract, and so for the next 20 years you're only getting 35% on the dollar for everything you're selling from the concession standpoint. That's going to hurt you, and it continues to do so. So, And the new owners are going to have to inherit that contract. So I don't want to get off topic here, but right. we all know ways you can generate money through the NHL and also getting to the playoffs and and uh, going deep into the playoffs, that can always help as well. But the Blues don't spend to the cap. They're not a team that can. They're a budget team, like a lot of other teams around the NHL. They don't have a Terry Pagula, if you will, as right. an owner who has a deep, deep pocket. So they understand the situation. Doug Armstrong doesn't complain. And you play with the cards you're dealt. And they're lucky they have a lot of high-end players who are making, you know, a little bit of money. Let's face it, Alex Petrangelo, one of the top defensemen in the league right now at 21, 22 years of age, he's got an entry-level contract. The same can be said for Kevin Shattenkirk, entry-level contract. You know, these are really $4 million players making less than a million bucks. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to pay these guys at some point. So we all know that day is coming, and hopefully they get some, sta- uh, you know, get the ownership situation stabilized before them. The sportscasters are here with Andy Strickland, who you can find on Twitter, at Andy Strickland, and you can find his website, truehockey.com. I want to ask you about the Western Conference playoffs, and I want to ask you two more things, and we'll get you out of here. Uh, the Western Conference playoffs, if you look at the standings, you see the teams that you would expect to be in the Western Conference playoffs. You see the Canucks, you see the Red Wings, you see the Blackhawks, you see the, you see the Sharks. But then you see the Blues, the Coyotes, and the Predators. Do you think that the Blues and Coyotes and Predators can crash this party and go deep into the Western Conference playoffs, or do you think that we're looking at the Red Wings and the Canucks facing off at some point and deciding that thing, or do you think one of those teams can be a spoiler? Well, I think they can They can definitely be a spoiler. I mean, whether or not they can win three rounds remains to be seen. I, I look at St. Louis and I say, you know what, they've got real strong goaltending. They play a structure that doesn't allow you uh, much in terms of giving up a whole lot for the opposition. And they're, they're, they've got three or four lines they can throw at you, and they can grind on you, and they can wear you down because they're a big physical team. Same type of situation with the Nashville Predators. I mean, I think Pekka Rene may be the best goaltender in the NHL. Nobody talks about this guy. I mean, he was a finalist for the Vesna last year. This guy is really, really good, okay? So I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, teams don't want to face St. Louis. They don't want to face Nashville in a seven-game series because even if you're Detroit and you know you can beat Nashville or you know you can beat St. Louis, you know at the end of that series you're going to be in a lot of pain. They're going to wear you down. It's going to be a physical, physical grind. And you would hope to avoid that at all costs if you can, because you know it's not going to be a four- or five-game series. So I think they're confident they can beat these teams, 
but they also know they're going to have to pay a price to do so. And the same can be said for uh, for the Phoenix Coyotes. I think Dave Tippett may be the best coach in the NHL. This guy is an unbelievable hockey coach in terms of being able to get the most out of what he has to deal with. Ken Hitchcock has had a great year here in St. Louis. Barry Trotz, all three of these teams we're talking about have unbelievable coaches with great hockey IQ, great minds for the game, and they have the ability to get the most out of the players they have on their roster because they're not loaded with superstars. Uh, they play a certain style that allows them a chance to win, and I think that's the three things, uh, the common denominator with all three of these teams is uh, is they've got great coaching and they've got good goaltending right now. I mean, Mike Smith and Phoenix has found a way to play well. Probably isn't at the same level of a Rene or a Jaro Halak, for example, but he's played right there with them thus far this season. Tell me about TrueHockey.com. Uh, where the idea came from, what you try to do to make TrueHockey.com different from some of the bigger websites out there? You know, I'm just trying to figure it out, to be honest. I mean, it's a one-man show. Um, I, it's almost like, you know, I, I work full-time in radio here in St. Louis. So that's my gig, but I enjoy writing. Uh, being here in St. Louis, you're not in New York, you're not in Toronto. So it kind of gives me a platform to be able to get my information and my content out. I try to have fun with it. Don't take myself too seriously, but I do want to be taken seriously at the same time. So, um, you know, it's kind of a work in progress. This is our second season with it. I invite people to check it out for sure, uh, especially, uh, I mean, throughout the course of the season, but especially come trade deadline time, as well as, um, you know, free agency, because I think that's what we do the best in terms of, you know, breaking stories and, and trying to get out in front of the coverage as best as we can, but, you know, we try to keep it true. That's the word I'm looking for. This is not like some fantasy hockey site or we make up stuff and throw out a bunch of rumors and stuff like that. I mean, we try to keep it real hockey. I mean, I grew up around the game, continue to be involved with youth hockey and try to bring that roots of hockey to, to the Internet. And so we love the game, but, you know, we'd like to do something with it, continue to take it to another level, and, and we'll see where it goes here in the future. But for now, we're having fun with it, and I invite people to check it out. All right, let's get you out of here on this, and you kind of mentioned it, and that's uh, you being involved in youth hockey in St. Louis. Why don't you tell us what the status of youth hockey is in the St. Louis area? Is it a sport that's on the rise? Is it a sport that's kind of middled? Is it on the decline? Where do you see hockey in St. Louis right now, and uh, how do you see it growing? Do you, do you see more and more high-level players coming from the St. Louis area? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the USHL and Division One hockey right now is loaded with St. Louis kids. Our organization, the AAA St. Louis Blues, have as good of a coaching staff as you're going to find anywhere else in the country, anywhere else in North America. We've got guys like Al McKinnis, Keith Kachuk, former Blue and former NHL defenseman Jeff Brown, Kelly Chase, uh, Rick Zombo. Um, you know, all coaching different teams, you know. Um, we've got other guys like... Uh, Jamie Rivers and Jim Campbell coming up, and they'll be involved in our AAA organization here sometime very soon. The guy coaches our midget, uh, major team, Scott Sanderson, has been with the program for, you know, almost 15 years and continues to produce, uh, players year after year after year. So, you know, we've got players playing in the NHL like Paul Stastny and Jan Stastny, uh, who used to play in the NHL, but other guys like Chris Butler, who, of course, play with the Sabres, yeah. Ben Bishop, uh, Cam Jansen. Um, we've got a number of players who have been drafted in recent years, like Philip McRae, Scott Mayfield was a second-round pick 
of of the uh, New York Islanders last year who came out of our program. Uh, Chris Weidman is another kid who was a fourth rounder of the Ottawa Senators. So we've got uh, more and more players on the on the rise. We've got players right now from St. Louis playing with the U.S. Development Program in Ann Arbor. A kid by the name of Connor Chatham. Uh, we had another kid by the name of Dakota Mermis who was there last year. Al McKinnis's boy, Ryan McKinnis, is likely headed there next year. So we've got more and more kids who will be drafted, more and more kids who will be playing college hockey and in the USHL and ultimately in the National Hockey League for years and years to come. Well, one thing they, they can't accuse you of at any time, Andy, is not having passion for the game. And I can hear it on the other end here, and it pumps me up. So thanks a lot for doing the show today. It's Andy Strickland. Again, you can find him on Twitter at Andy Strickland. His website is truehockey.com. And uh, 590 The Fan in St. Louis is where he does his radio work. Andy, thanks a lot for for doing the show today. We really appreciate it. And uh, before I let you go, I'm going to put a gun to your head, and I want you to tell me who's going to play in the Stanley Cup in June. Wow. That's not easy to do. You know, know, I, I honestly, you look at the Eastern Conference right now, I don't see anybody in a seven-game series beating the Boston Bruins, and I think they've got the goaltending, obviously, and the experience that they'll, you know, uh, you know, look upon from last season. I mean, the New York Rangers are there. I've seen them play live a couple of times this year. Uh, if Lundqvist struggles a little bit, I'm not so sure they have the firepower to make up for it. So I'm going to take Boston coming out of the East once again. And out of the West, man, Vancouver did a nice job yesterday, but I think this may be Detroit's year. They've been playing some great hockey, especially if they have home home ice advantage. I mean, you look at the way they've played thus far this year at home, nobody's beating them at Joe Louis Arena. So we may see an original six Detroit and Boston Stanley Cup final. But, again, I'll probably be wrong, and if I am, that's okay. Wow, a really risky pick by Strickland there. He goes Sabres versus... Sabres versus Wings in the Cup. Good pick, man. I mean, I... I said Bruins. Oh, you said Bruins. Oh, okay. I thought you said... I was going to say, we're six points out of it, man. I don't know if that's such a good pick. But I like to see the Sabres get in, okay? (laughs) My boy Chris Butler was there the last couple years. Brad Boys, who I still keep in in touch with and talk to all the time. And and you've had to have covered Lee Stepniak, who's a Buffalo boy, Lee Stepniak, another one of my guys who's from Buffalo. Yeah, what a delight. Tim Kennedy is from Buffalo. Yep, yep, Tim Kennedy. My brother, um, Anthony Day, he, plays at Yale right now from Buffalo. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so, I, no, I, I'd like to see the Sabres do well. There's All no right. question about that. Ryan Miller, uh, it just seems like you know, ever since he, uh, he got trucked by Milan Lucic yeah, he hasn't been the same. and went south, you know, and yeah. I think there is a correlation there you can look at. So. Oh, you're 100% right. All right, thanks, Andy. We appreciate it. All right, anytime, man. You take care. All right. All right, we have to thank Andy Strickland for being on the show, first-timer there, and thank our other guests, the great Dave Damashak and, of course, Dan Levy. Just a couple more pieces of business before we sign off for this week. I don't want you to forget about finding us on Facebook. We're www.facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. or at sports underscore casters. You can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Find our blogs, thesportscasters.blogspot.com or thesportscasters.tumblr.com. And all of that, because it's a mouthful, can be found on our website, www.sports-casters.com. All right. Next week's show, you'll be excited to know, will be the return of Jeff Merrick from the Merrick vs. Wachinski podcast and Sportsnet in Canada. And also... 
since it's time to do pick four, I should mention we had a great week last week. Hopefully you were betting with us last week as we were uh, <laughs> six and two overall. We both had one one blemish. I had the Sabres minus one and a half over the Bruins. Uh, they actually only won by one. And Don had that Nick Rick Nash would be traded to Boston. He went didn't nowhere. get traded nope. anywhere. Uh, our victories. I was uh, had three wins. The Knicks over the Hawks, 92-82. Duke over Florida State, 74-66. And Kansas over Missouri, 87-86. And what took the largest comeback in the history of Allen Fieldhouse, a 19-point deficit. Thank you, Kansas. Yes. Uh, Don won that same Kansas game. He also had the Heat over the Knicks, 102-88. And the Thunder over the Celtics, 119-104. Overall, since we started season two, I am an impressive twenty-two and eleven, and Don is a not quite as impressive thirteen and twelve. Yeah, I was going to say when you were uh, or thirteen and twenty-one. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I wasn't that good. Yeah. If, you, if you're betting with us ever, you should always be betting against me at this point. <laughs> All right, so Don, you want to kick us off? Pick four for today. Sure. This week's game of the week is a rivalry game in number seven, North Carolina, going to Duke. To play number four Duke, uh, that's Saturday, March third, seven o'clock on ESPN. Give me Duke at home. Uh, I said it last week. I love the home field advantage in college games. It just feels like the the fans are right on top of the players, and it's got to be intimidating for away teams. So give me Duke. You know, when these two teams played earlier in the season, Duke beat North Carolina in North Carolina on a buzzer beater by Austin Rivers, and. Because of that result, part of me thinks that this game is going to be a little bit more important to North Carolina than it is to Duke, and I think we're going to see North Carolina outplay Duke. Duke's gotten away with a couple games. I've seen NC State. They struggled, need to have a big comeback late. So I'm going to pick North Carolina. My host choice this week is another NBA game, but I'm not going to go with quite the gimme game that I have been lately, taking Oklahoma City over uh, chump teams. This week I'm going to take uh, the Bulls at the Spurs. That's on ESPN tomorrow night, Wednesday night at 9 o'clock. Uh, both solid teams. Spurs this year, though, 13-1 and one at home. Give me the Spurs. All right. My host choice, I'm going to take number four, Kansas, over Texas on Saturday, March 3rd at 9 o'clock on ESPN. One reason for this, I wanted to pick against Texas. So screw <laughs> you, Texas. The worldwide leader pick this week. I'm going to get back to what I did a lot last season, even though it was unsuccessful. But uh, the prime, or not prime time, but the uh, national hockey game on NBC on Sunday at 12:30. That's the Bruins and the Rangers. Wait a minute. <laughs> the Rangers and the Bruins are on cable TV. Yeah, I know. Come uh, on, you sure that's not Pittsburgh and Washington? No, no, it's not Philadelphia, Detroit either. Oh my goodness, or Chicago. Chicago, yeah, that's all of them. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uh, the Rangers are actually two and zero against the Bruins this year, but I just have a gut feeling, I guess. So I'm going to take the Bruins on the road. All right, I'm going to take number five Michigan State over number eleven Ohio State Sunday, March fourth at four o'clock on CBS. The Big Ten is a really good conference this year, and Michigan State this is their this is their time of the season where Tom Izzo really has them clicking on all cylinders. So I'm going to take Michigan State in what should be a really good basketball game to watch on the Sunday before Selection Sunday, I think. All right, my bold prediction this week, I'm going to try something here that maybe isn't uh, so hard to predict. The Sabres face off against the hottest team in the league in Anaheim tomorrow night in Anaheim on the road. Uh, Give me the Sabres to 
win against the streaking Anaheim, and I'm going to say Hodgson gets his first point as a saver. I don't know if you've seen this yet, but I know his number. Do you? I heard it was 12. Wrong. No? No. Okay. It's 19. Is it? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense, because he always wore nines. I don't know. I heard on the radio today it was going to be 12 for some reason. Yep, 19. All right, uh, my bold prediction, number 13, Florida, over number one, Kentucky. That game's on Sunday, March 4th as well, 12 o'clock on CBS. So CBS has a great college basketball doubleheader. If not a triple header, there might even be a game in the middle there. But um, Florida versus Kentucky, Michigan State over Ohio State. Look at Kentucky hasn't lost since December 10th. This game is going to be their last chance to lose a game without losing something significant. If they lose during the SEC tournament, they lose a banner. So maybe they mail it you know, in a little and bit. Maybe, you know, I don't know if they're going to mail it in as much as saying, you know, maybe it's just subconsciously or maybe this game means more to Florida or something, but... I think it's in Kentucky's best interest to drop one, so I'm going to try to boldly predict that they'll drop the, their last game of the season, uh, regular season, uh, against Florida. All right, so that about wraps up the show. Again, I want to thank Dave Damashek, want to thank Dan Levy, want to thank Andy Strickland, and want to congratulate Corey Conacher, who is going to be uh, signing a two-way contract with the Tampa Bay Lightning tomorrow. Yeah, congrats. Congrats, Corey. Don, cue the hip. <laughs> All right.